There is a place where fears and fantasies get weighed in substance alone. Legends and lores are examined in fresh light. Conspiracy theory meets conspiracy fact. Abandon your defenses. Embrace the possibilities. Step beyond the threshold into other realms. And then there was one point where I heard uh, a growl. You're listening to Threshold Radio on TheEdgeOnAir.com. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. If you could make it down to the Chicago Ghost Conference, that's where we're at right now. 4050 North Milwaukee Avenue. We're at the third annual Chicago Ghost Conference live. Uh, just to name a few guests, Chris Fleming, Mike Clean, and much more. We also have uh, vendors all over the place sitting right in front of us, Heartland Hauntings. Um, we also have a couple of uh, artists here, musicians, uh, many, many, many authors trying to sell their books here. It's, it's a great, great experience. And if you're uh, into ghosts and researching uh, the paranormal, this is a great place for you to be right now. We're going to start off right away with a guest right after this quick commercial break on Threshold Radio. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Maranto and John Stevenson. We are live at the Chicago Ghost Conference. I'm going to take you right over to Sam Maranto right now. Sam. Ed, how you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Now, is this your first time up here? Well, I live here, but this is my first time at the conference. Okay, and you've been in um, the field of the paranormal as far as in what aspect? I explore graveyards. I explore the history of graveyards. I photograph them. I've traveled all throughout the state. I've photographed thousands of graveyards. So you're an historian as far as when it comes to graveyards? Somewhat. I basically just try to see what's out there in terms of art, history. There's a lot of people who uh, were very important back in the day. They founded the towns they live in. They were leading businessmen, war heroes, politicians, and they're completely forgotten now. Maybe on the names of streets, but aside from that, nobody knows who they are. You walk into a cemetery and you see these fantastic monuments that people built to last for all time. And I try to preserve that. A lot of these monuments are being damaged now. Uh, They're being damaged by vandalism, acid rain, uh, pollution, uh, and just natural crumbling. And I need to document that before it's gone. There's been monuments that have been destroyed just in the 15 years or so that I've been doing this. Now, so within the last 15 years, going back to graveyards, you're seeing an incremental or, or a drastic increase of damage to graveyards. And this is throughout the state. Are you finding it or more so in other areas? Uh, more so in the south and the north. 
I've noticed that a lot of the stones in southern Illinois have deteriorated quite a bit from the weather. Uh, my own great-grandfather's stone, I photographed that 10 years ago and it was very easy to read. Now, unless you know the name, you can't really read it. Have you and, noticed on the way up here, as I was uh, looking at the uh, facades of some of the buildings, and you could see the deterioration from just the acidity and the... Uh, uh, what I appear, I'm thinking is just the pollution and the acidity. Right. And uh, I noticed back oh some time ago down in uh, a town that I was at. Um, I believe it was uh, um, uh, oh one of the towns out south. And uh, in their park, they had this beautiful sculpture, and now it looks like ET. It's been right. deteriorated so bad. Well, sculptors prefer marble. Marble is a soft stone. It's easy to work with. You can cut it with a knife even. And it's very beautiful because of the natural texture of it. But it's such a soft stone that it just melts in the rain. Yes. And 100 years ago, the preferred material for monuments was marble. And most cemeteries won't even allow that anymore because it's so easily damaged. Now they require that everything be granite. Really? But granite's harder to work with, and that's why a lot of monuments these days are, for the most part, just simply rectangular. Uh, it was it's the older marble stones that were so beautifully carved. You have statues, either of the person buried there or religious figures or some sort of scene from someone's life. And these are just melting away, and it's getting worse every year. And I try to visit them and photograph them and document them before they're all gone. As far as your favorite graveyard in the state, uh, what would that be? I think that's Graceland. Graceland. Uh, Graceland's right here in Chicago on Irving Park Road. It's got a lot of millionaires, uh, people like Potter Palmer, uh, his wife Bertha Palmer. They have this magnificent mausoleum that looks like a Greek temple. Uh, next to them is William Kimball, who uh, founded the, pian the Kimball Piano Company. Uh, George Mortimer Pullman of the Pullman Railroad Car Company. They have uh, these fantastic monuments that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, and some of those are weathering better than others. The newer ones, they're granite, and they, for the most part, are still in good shape. Uh, the marble ones are just melting away. Uh, the angel at, uh, at Kimball's monument was decapitated and repaired by the cemetery years ago, but its face is almost completely worn away. Amazing. And uh, it's just a soft stone. It doesn't tolerate the weather that well. It, um, oh, it loses yeah. the detail, and it loses more detail every year, and that's why I try to preserve this stuff. Here at Graceland, there's... Uh, there's important political figures, a lot of Chicago mayors, a uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice, Melville Fuller. Uh, there's businessmen, there's war heroes, and there's just a fantastic variety of monuments there. Statues, obelisks, columns, mausolea, and of course the uh, more common slab-type stones that everyone has. But those are all hand-carved, and there's a lot of detail on the surface of those if you look at them closely. And you could spend days just wandering around there and seeing all there is to see, and you still wouldn't find it all. Now, what would you say was your most unusual find, let's say, as far as monument? Uh, there's a stone in uh, Mount Carmel Cemetery, which is in the west suburbs near the town of Hillside. It's a very large Catholic cemetery. It's uh, very Italian. Uh, there's a lot of fantastic stonework there, a lot of mausolea, a lot of statues, and there's this one statue of an entire family. There's about five people. There's an old woman sitting in a chair behind a railing, and her entire family is standing around her. And uh, the figures are about three or four feet tall, so it's not quite life-size. But the interesting thing about this monument is that you can spin it on its base. The, uh, the marble base and the marble top are attached by a shaft. 
and you can push on the top of it and you can spin it 360 degrees so that the stone can face any direction. And I like to think that they didn't want to face the same direction for all of eternity. Amazing. And there is nothing like that anywhere else that I have ever heard of. Well, Matt, you got some very interesting points here just in that alone. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of characteristics that you find unique as far as in the bequeaths of the people as far as before they went. They put some, they put some thinking and some planning into their final days. Uh, now, as far as your book, where can people get a copy of your book, which is, of course, Graveyards of Chicago? Uh, Graveyards of Chicago was written by Ursula Bielski, who is the sponsor of this conference, and I did the photos. Uh, it was published in 1999. It's available in the major chain bookstores, Amazon, uh, used bookshops sometimes. Uh, it's fairly easy to get a hold of. And my website, graveyards.com, it also has links to Amazon and other sources for the book. Well, I want to thank you very much for your insight into the graveyards in the final days. Thank you. And the, I should say the permanent days of our mortal remains here in the Chicagoland area. And uh, maybe I'll run into you a little bit further on into the uh, into this conference. Certainly. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. All right, you're listening to Threshold Radio. We'll be right back live from the Chicago Ghost Conference when we return. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back. We got Joey from the Ghost Research Society. How you doing, Joey? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Uh, what you got for us? Anything special? Well, I figured let's talk about personal experiences, right? Yeah, there let's, you go. Let's talk about a place that everybody's heard of, Waverly Hill Sanatorium, yeah, Louisville, Kentucky. Have amazing you been place, yes. <laughs> it's great. Basically, what I'll talk about right now is... Back in 2008, we had about six team members go down to Bardstown, Kentucky for a paranormal conference. Uh-huh. While we're down there, Louisville's about an hour away. Why don't we take a ride to Louisville and check it out? So we have a team member that lives in Bardstown. They actually set up the hour-and-a-half historic ghost tour for us. So this is great. We're going to go there. We'll learn something about the place. We'll check it out and walk around and take uh-huh. pictures. We finally get to the fourth floor. Now, everybody knows the fourth floor is famous for shadow people. Right. Now, <laughs> I like to call myself the open-minded skeptic, Okay. so I want to see something if I'm going to believe it. Right. So they have an experiment where they, they line people up one at a time. They want you to walk down the corridor, pass three doorways, turn around and come back with okay. your arms stretched out. So I'm thinking, okay, what's this all about? Let's find out. I watch one person walk through, and what happens is once you pass these doorways, it looks like these shadows are coming out of these rooms. Right. So automatically I'm thinking, okay, there's no flashlights, there's no overhead lights, so you can see exit lights around the corridor, but that's it. So I look outside, okay, is the moonlight casting a shadow? What's happening? Mm-hmm. Of course I get a team member that wants to volunteer and go next. However, she's a, uh, let's say she's a chicken. She doesn't <laughs> want to do it by herself. Well, that is a creepy place, so you got to give her credit uh, for that. I'll, I'll give her a little <laughs> bit. So she asked the tour guide, is it okay if somebody goes with me? Uh-huh. Yeah, sure, no problem. She grabs my hand and we start walking. I'm on her right. Once we get through to about the third door, I look outside, 
and where there should be a door, I see a seven-foot mass standing in the corner. I make the thing, okay, what's this? What's causing this kind of shadow? Yeah. I'm not sure, but I'm not going to say anything because I don't want her to squeeze my hand and make me start bleeding. Yeah. So as we turn around and start venturing back down the corridor, I take two steps, and I feel an ice-cold hand touch my back and push me forward. At the same time this happens, I'm watching everybody in front of me, and I see people gasping for air and saying, oh, my God, did you see that? So right then and there, it's not my eyes playing tricks on me with the shadows. Right. I definitely felt something and someone saw it. So I thought it was a fantastic experience. And from there, we went back and spoke with Dale, the president of our group, and said um, we really need to set up an investigation of this place. Yeah, that place, we actually rented it privately for the night. Yeah, we did that the following year. We did the and same that thing. that was amazing. But I had the same thing. Something touched me that was cold. Oh. I got pushed down the stairway. Do you have any experiences in the death tunnel? Actually, no. When I went through the death tunnel, I was hoping for something. Absolutely nothing. But it was cool to do it yeah. and go down there and go all the way down and come all we, the way back. We actually had light bulbs in our flashlights explode. Oh, wow. Now that's cool. And that happened to three people. Wow. That's really cool. So I'm like, we have extra batteries. No big deal. And the light bulbs blow up. I'm like, okay, time to get out of here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Considering we were in the pitch black because all our lights had blown up. <laughs> yeah, that just adds to the creepy effect, doesn't it? Well, just the name death tunnel adds to the creepy effect. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Really cool place. Great history. I love it. Yeah, so did I. I actually love that place. Okay, when we return, John's running to the studio right now to talk to Michael Clean and Amelia. So uh, that and much more when we return. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. And right now we have Michael Clean on the phone. What's up, Mike? How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. And I've got a, a great guest for you tonight. Uh, her name's Amelia Cotter. She's the author of This House, The True Story of a Girl and a Ghost. And I just published the second edition of the book. And so she's going to... Uh, talk to us this evening about uh, some of the book and you know some of her personal experiences in the paranormal she's been around in uh, maryland originally and then also in chicago so it should be very interesting all right uh amelia for our listeners who may not have um, heard of your book or have heard of you even though it it is a bestseller is it not you self-published it last year and rather quickly took off on uh, Kindle. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and sort of the uh, the genealogy of the story, how, how you got into writing this book. Well, um, I'm originally from Maryland, and um, I experienced the events that take place in this book as a child uh, when I was growing up. Um, in Baltimore and Harford counties, but the the story itself takes place in Baltimore County. Um, 
basically I was fascinated by this abandoned house uh, near where my dad worked. Uh, he worked out in, in horse country in Baltimore, uh, like I said, and um, I started to take notes. I started to become like this sort of like this junior ghost hunter, and I would go out to this abandoned house, um, and it was literally right next door almost to the restaurant. So my mom and you know my dad kind of supervised me as I explored. Um, I took notes on the place, I investigated, and I ended up having some interesting experiences. Um, as I got older, you know, I did a lot of exploring and ghost hunting, and I still had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to write ghost stories and things like that, but as a teenager uh, and in college, I did a lot more of the exploration and not so much of the writing. And then it just sort of came back into my life at some point. Um, I got sick with cancer actually a few years ago right after I graduated from college and I sort of had this weird kind of downtime where I was able to revisit my interest in writing and ghost stories and everything and I started to write this and it was actually it was a, it was a short story um, that turned itself into a book. Hmm. So this is all about personal accounts sense. It is. It's written um, sort of in a narrative format through the eyes of a character uh, who's a little bit older than I was at the time. It makes it more relatable, I think, for readers and more interesting. I could add some some literary elements and not just sort of make it very, you know, choppy, like story, you know, as if I was just recounting what happened. Um, but everything, you know, that it happened in there is true. And then at the end of the book, um, I include my original journal and my original notes um, so that people can sort of compare um, between the story and what happens to Nora, who's the character, and what really happened to me. Hmm. Now, were there already ghost stories about this house? I remember something in the book about this house being located in an area where there were a lot of ghost stories. Yes, and that was one of the most fascinating points for me um, going into it was that, you know, my dad worked at this restaurant, but it wasn't just a restaurant. It was like this wonderland of ghost lore, and um, I was already interested in the paranormal anyway, you know, since I was like seven or eight. So I was, you know, dying to hear these stories, and um, the restaurant itself had been a, originally been a stable um, then it had become a tavern and a place, you know, of ill repute, and then uh, it became, you know, just a regular, like, fine dining restaurant, and people had already named the ghost, so the ghost in the book's name is Walter, but people had been experiencing Walter and his friends for years before I came on the scene, um, and the story of how Walter got his name was that there was a, this poor cleaning guy in the restaurant very early in the morning one day um, who was, you know, vacuuming the carpet, I guess, and a woman uh, in Victorian dress walked into the room and walked up to him and asked him if he knew where Walter was. And then she turned and walked through the wall. Oh, cool. So he immediately, you know, ran out of the place and refused to ever go in there again, and then it was just legend after that. Uh, even my dad had an experience while he worked there in the wine cellar, which I think, you know, wine cellars are probably universally creepy places. <laughs> And uh, he's a skeptic, and he said that, you know, he was down there one day getting some wine and felt uh, someone put their hand on his shoulder and thought nothing of it, turned around to see who it was, and there was no one there. <laughs> is he still a skeptic? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. He still kind of is. He's hard to convince, and I think I, think I got that from him because I'm definitely, I'm not a skeptic, I believe, but I'm hard to convince. But for him, he, he definitely couldn't deny that. So. Well, talk about... 
the uh, sort of unexpected success of the book. Now, you self-published it, and then it just sort of took off from there. Why, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Well, when I self-published it, it's interesting because, you know, my goal was to be an author and to to do that thing, and but uh, I didn't really expect that this book was going to be really successful. I thought, you know, all of my friends would would give it a pity read or something and I was like well maybe we'll see it'll be a stepping stone especially since I self-published it you know I went about the process though very professionally I had it professionally edited I took you know I made sure that I painstakingly went through and turned it into the best book that it could be um, and it ended up paying off I you know I did sell it to my friends and family at first and everybody thought it was this really cute thing and then at some point after it, it had been out for a few months um, I had done a couple of book signings and radio interviews, but nothing major, and it just started to climb the charts. Um, I think once it got to a certain point, like in Kindle um, and on Amazon, it just sort of started to run away with itself, and people, you know, I mean, definitely the title helps. Everything that you need to know about it is right in the title, and so it sort of has its own little tagline, and uh, it just shot up from there. It was um, best-selling in a lot of different categories, and Spine chilling horror, which I didn't even know was a category, and the regular <laughs> ghost stories, children's ghost stories. Um, it would occasionally, it was mostly best selling in Kindle, um, but then sometimes it would go in the bestsellers for paperback too. And since it's been, now that it's with Black Oak Media, um, it's climbed, I think its highest was number 14 in Supernatural. So I'm pretty proud of that too. It, it, the topic sort of sells itself um, and of course like not to like you know stomp all over my own hard work because I, I have to give myself some credit but of course I did not expect at all that it was going to take off the way it did and I'm really glad because it's you know it's led to all these other great opportunities so and people yeah. you know reading my story so I, I was certainly excited when you wanted to publish a second edition with my company Black Oak Media and in the second edition, there's a preview of an upcoming book about haunted places in Maryland. Uh, can you tell us what some of your favorite haunted places in Maryland are? Um, I have so many. Maryland's this teeny tiny place um, with 23 counties, but I uh, ventured to most of them during my teenagehood, and I... Um, made sure to include some of my favorite spots in the book. A couple of those um, are the Jericho Covered Bridge in Harford County, um, which has some of your typical uh, like crybaby bridge type folklore stories attached to it, but then there's some other interesting stories. It used to, um, it was very close to a place where uh, they owned slaves during the Civil War, and because Maryland was a state that was sort of like in between, there was some allegiance to the North and to the South, um, they used to have protests there, and slaves were hanged from the bridge. Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of very disturbing uh, stories associated with it. And of course, I still, you know, I went out there with my friends, and I had some interesting experiences there. And I even had my car die once, which is one of those stories people always tell you how the, their car died after they went on the bridge and all this. You know, they you turn off your engine and flash your light three times and stuff, and it actually happened. Um, and we had to actually get a pretty, you know, a fair amount of work done on the car after that. My dad was really shocked. Um, 
Another place which is actually gone now, sadly, uh, was Hell House in Ellicott City. Um, and that was actually a school um, for young men. Um, it often gets confused with the Patapsco Female Institute, which is actually still there, but it was um, St. Mary's College, I believe was the technical name of it, and uh, for many, there were a lot of rumors going around about satanic rituals and things that happened while it was this Catholic school and also after, um, and there was an old caretaker who actually, who did live there, he did exist, and he did have dogs. Um, and I, you know, I can imagine that when people would go up there and hear those dogs barking among the ruins of this old school, that it sounded really scary. But of course, there were stories that he had sicked the dogs on kids, and they were mauled, and horrible things happened. And half the place ended up burning down, like in the late '90s. And people said it was because parents wanted to get revenge on him. But um, you know, those things may or may not be true. Well, a lot of these places try to make you say things that you don't want to say, like Mike was just saying about his little ghost adventures show. <laughs> they, they try to make you say things you don't want to say for the, so the show's better. Right, it does, exactly. I'm going to say most of that was just blown out of proportion, but people have had wild and crazy you know, paranormal encounters there, and one of them is featured in the book, a lot of shadow people and things like that. So there's nothing to say that those beings don't exist there. They're probably just not, you know, the evil demons or whatever that, uh, that legend talks about. When did you come to Chicago? Why did you come to Chicago? And how did you get involved in the paranormal? There? I came to Chicago in February of 2008, right after I was finished uh, with my chemotherapy and decided, you know, I was going to turn over a new leaf. I had um, a relationship here and I came here for that relationship and um, which has since ended, but we are still friends, just uh, in case that person is out there listening. Um, but, you know, I decided at some point, at first I sort of struggled and had to, like, get in touch with the real world again and get a real job, but once I could afford to kind of have a hobby, I was like, man, I need to get back into this. I needed, I was, you know, trying to get back into writing. I was trying to be in my first ever real uh, paranormal group. And I joined the Chicago Ghost Hunters group, which is a meetup group that's open to the public. And I met some really neat people there and uh, just sort of like found my niche, I guess. And as the writing progressed, I sort of found my own voice. And um, at some point, a few of us in the group had some disagreements with others. Um, but So we amicably, amicably ended our relationship with the CGHG and formed the Chicago Paranormal Seekers. But for me, I'm just more interested um, in investigating with a smaller group and investigating places that are known to be haunted. Some people will only investigate places that, uh, you know, like private uh, home and business investigations. And we definitely do some of that in CPS, but it's not my favorite thing. Um, it's very involved, it's very intense, and I don't have the time for it. For me, this is more of a personal endeavor, something that's more spiritual and intimate for me, not something I don't uh, feel the need to, I, I don't know, I guess it's just more about personal exploration for me. So hmm. we're very low-key. We, we try not to take ourselves too seriously because we really don't have the answer. You know, what I do is I tell stories about the paranormal and I enjoy listening to other people's stories. I don't try to be an authority on it in that in that sense, you know what I mean? Uh, you had me come and speak to your meetup group last year. I, I've always been curious about uh, how you heard about me. 
Oh yeah, um, yeah, and I kind of got I got off the meetup topic on a tangent. We we had heard about you. I heard about you just through my my geeky authorness of stalking different paranormal authors and stuff. But I think it was Ken Munyer who had the idea to actually contact you, um, and I think he was the one who initially suggested that we come to you um, and. Then I think I I don't even remember. I think I sent you the email or the correspondence. Um, so that was super exciting. Man, that that was back when I just published Paranormal Illinois, or right. it was published by Schiffer Books. That was uh, I feel like so much has changed since that time. It feels like a million years ago, and it feels doesn't like it? Everything since then has happened so fast, like has sped so quickly, and now all of a sudden, you know, you're on ghost adventures. And you know, like all this crazy stuff's going on. I'm writing best-selling books and whatnot. It's it's like, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty awesome, I guess. Well, hopefully next year, this this time next year, we'll be talking to each other again, and we'll feel like everything that happened this year was just a footnote. Exactly. Compared to the future. Exactly. Hopefully. I'm hoping. Right. It can only it can only get better from here. So. So have you ever, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about it on the air, but the last time we spoke, you, you told me about an incident at Mantino State Hospital with, oh. uh, <laughs> I don't know if you want to tell that story. Oh, that's fine. I, I've got no shame. Like I said, when I was telling you, it's probably one of the more exciting stories I have in my arsenal. And then nothing paranormal happened that night. Uh, about a year or more ago, I visited Mantino at night with some people, and um, we, you know, we entered illegally. I, I admit, I confess. Um, in in Maryland, it was always a lot easier. Or in Pennsylvania, it was easier to do these things. Uh, and in, in in the Chicago area, they do not mess around. Um, so we used to go to Gettysburg at night and stuff like that. The sheriffs would come. They'd catch us. They would you know, escort us out of there. They were super nice. They're like, ah, you dorky ghost hunters, get out of here. That was it. And this time, um, we were in Mantino and, uh, I guess we were in that main building there that everybody can go into. It's one of the few that has like, uh, door, door open access. I'm not sure how it is now. Um, so, you know, we were in there exploring and we knew somehow that the police were there. We couldn't see them, but somebody just, you know, said they had this feeling that they saw lights outside, etc. So someone went and peeked and the place was surrounded by cops. And, I'm not kidding. and we were like, oh my God. And so at the time, um, now if this would happen, which it wouldn't, because I, you know, I, I'm the development director of an organization. I cannot be arrested for something but at the time, um, you know, we probably didn't handle it as well as we could have. We probably should have given ourselves up and just been like, you know, we're so, so sorry. But we sort of um, had this like group panic and uh, just kind of stood there in shock and waited. This, it, it was, again, it was like something out of a movie. This poor policeman was coming down the hallway and we could hear him. He was coming down the hallway, checking every room. And when he got to the room that we were in, like, we just, I held my breath, I sucked, I sucked in my stomach, I couldn't say anything, I was so scared for some reason, and uh, he was terrified, he turns his flashlight on seven people standing in a bathroom in the dark, <laughs> and, uh, and he actually um, pulled a gun on us, and, uh, you know, I, 
now I probably, you know, shouldn't say anymore, but no, it was fine. He, he was shocked. He's, he yelled out. Then he, you know, of course yelled at us and took us outside and we were belittled by all of the police and they told us, they asked us if our grandmother was coming to pick us up. And, uh, you know, we stood there and took it cause we, we totally deserved it. And, um, and then we left, and I remember leaving, you know, they let us go, I guess. They claimed that they had been there looking for somebody else. I'm sure that's, like, the story they tell everyone, but these weren't the Mantino cops. They were the sheriff's department, so we were like, hmm, maybe they were serious, but I remember, it's like, I was so shocked. I was, I had to laugh when we got into the car, all of us were just giggling for, like, 15 minutes because that was the only, like, emotion that we had, and, uh, Every, I mean, since then, I haven't done anything along those lines at all. That was just a big wake-up call, but it was pretty funny um, now that, you know. Sure. <laughs> exactly. And how stupid. Like, now I would I would just not, I would never handle a situation like that. Just stand there and be quiet while, while somebody with a, you know, a deadly weapon was coming down a dark hallway. So. Wow. I'm surprised I haven't heard any ghost stories about that. With you saying that the, the cops were looking for people around there, it, it reminded me of things that I read about in my research about Mantino, where apparently because it was an open campus, um, dozens of patients would escape all the time. They would just walk off the campus, and a lot of them were, uh, during the winter, they were like found in nearby fields, dead and everything. So it'd be interesting to to see if anybody's ever seen like spook lights or something in a, a field nearby, you know. What I thought was particularly interesting about the property is that there there were houses and in a neighborhood basically built right up to the campus. Yeah. Oh, they built it on top of the campus. Yeah, that like um, overlooking these creepy uh, abandoned buildings and then of course, you know, I when when we were at just at this Paranormal Kicks Cancer event and the lady was talking about um, when it was actually open and having gone there, it adds that extra bit of dimension to it. You know, it's like these were real people and it's just, it's very sad like to think about it. Um, but also I, I just couldn't live there. I couldn't live near, you know, an abandoned mental institution. I would be scared every day. Well, what is, uh, what's your favorite place here in Chicago now that you've been living here for a couple of years? Um, I guess, oh boy. Well, right. Well, there's there's always Bachelor's Grove, which I right. And it, people talk about how overrated it is and stuff, but you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's like being in the presence of a celebrity or something. These are places that are world famous for being haunted. So, so. quick question, ghost hunters, what do you think? <laughs> it, it's you know, I think in the era of not. Uh, not having silent films you know in the silent film era like that the actors would be very expressive with gestures there's no reason for that anymore <laughs> i mean we've come a long way since that time that's true well i guess you know maybe they were trying to make it like like really beef up that side of the the hauntings there yeah well well sometimes when you're when you're working with a place that maybe you don't get that much excitement out of out of your filming there, you know, you have to kind of make it more exciting than what it was. 
I think that's the situation. Well, those not kind of shows are more for entertainment than reality. I mean, they're not really ghost hunters. They're just TV guys acting. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be up front. Um, ghost hunters or ghost hunters, it's because it was just on. Um, ghost Adventures is actually my favorite pick <laughs> of the shows. Although I do like the new show Paranormal Witness. Um, I, I mean, I watch them all. I enjoy them for their entertainment value. Well, I just told Mike there when we were waiting for you. I go, I watch it for the the comedy value. <laughs> right, and I I genuinely enjoy it, and I sometimes I get scared and stuff, but I you know I take it for what it is, and I'm sure, you know, that stuff changes people too. Um, I did I did like the Paranormal Witness. Uh, that was that was one where the the woman and her daughter were driving along the road and they saw that a girl without a face that was got, so creepy a girl without a face i saw that that yeah that's a great story it's a good show right see i like because i you know writing stories i like people to tell me a good story you know i like how they i like how that show is formatted um and the it's just super scary i mean for me that's all it needs to be as long as it's scary, I'm fine. I don't need to, you know, analyze it further. I think some people take those shows really seriously. I've heard people really, really like bashing Ghost Adventures or Ghost Hunters or whatever, and I'm like, man, take well, yeah, it easy. those shows have got definite haters. I mean, just insane haters. <laughs> <laughs> to a shocking degree, I'm like, you know, it's it just TV people. That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're all nice people too. They're not out to like destroy the the paranormal community or whatever. I think we can actually, you know, thank television for making this a hobby that's like acceptable in society now, and people actually reach out for ghost hunters to come. Well, yeah, ages ago, I've been involved in this my entire life. Ages ago, you would never tell anybody you were involved in this kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. That's so. You know, TV is a big factor in that, and I think you know. Still have to, we still right, we have to like pay our respects. We don't have to like the shows, so that's true. <laughs> Just acknowledging the, their importance, I guess. Well, that one's better now because Mike was on it for 15 seconds. So I mean, their ratings went <laughs> through the roof. Exactly. Yeah, I bet. Exactly. <laughs> okay, uh, Amelia, do you have any other events coming up that you'd like to tell us about? Um, well, I do think I'm going to be on Ed Shanahan's radio show soon, and I'm doing a private book group signing. Um, sometime during this month. I'm also going to be at the Chicago Ghost Conference this weekend just as a visitor, just checking it out and getting some autographs and stuff, but I'll be around. Um, well, maybe we'll get you on the radio because we're broadcasting live from there. Oh, cool. I'll get to meet you. Yeah, um, it's no big honor. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and then I'm, you know, I'm still available for some, some other things. I'm trying to book some more interviews. And then my, um, my children's book, Breakfast with Bigfoot, um, which is being published by Barclay Bryan Press. That's going to be coming out sometime in December in time for Christmas sales, and I'm going to have some sort of um, publishing party for that. So, you know, that'll be a mix of public and, and author invitations and stuff, but I definitely want people to know that's going to be coming out soon, too. That, one, that one's going to be great. It sounds I saw good. some preview illustrations, and they're really adorable. It's going to be a ton of, a ton of fun. Well, thank you very much. Now, how can people find out more about your work? People know that I'm on Facebook. My books are on Facebook, and uh, you can find me there. I have um, I have a blog for the for this house, which is thishousebook.net. 
and I don't write actively on it, but it is, it has gotten a facelift, it is updated, the sidebars have the Facebook information, so. Well, thank you very much. Michael Clean and Amelia, we'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. You could say TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms, and with us now is Catton. How do you say your last name? Coloco. Coloco. What nationality is that? German. It's It's the name of a city. Oh, wow. Did they have a nice brewery out there? I think so, yeah. Oh, see? That's great. (laughs) And you have a book out, Haunted Hoosier Halls, Indiana University. Yep. And you're a Hoosier? Uh, Yes, I am. Oh, my gosh. What the heck is a Hoosier? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Let's Somebody. be honest here. There are so many origin stories for the term Hoosier yeah. that it's just like grab it out of a hat and be like, I think it will be this one, which means whose ear is this from a bar <laughs> brawl in the old settler days. That so. sounds good. Actually, I like that one. Mm, yeah. Sounds uh, tasty, too. John Stevenson has his own version of it. His uh, grandfather used to use the term every time somebody was driving bad. Mm. So to him, it was a bad driver. Uh, yeah. And in and. Indiana, they probably say Illinois or Illinois or something. Or the Michigan people. I'm from South Bend, Indiana, which is just a stone's throw away from the Michigan border. So we're like, oh, those Michigan drivers. (laughs) Or if you're from Angola, Indiana, oh, those Buckeyes. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, I had asked you if you were in journalism, and you weren't, and you were in... Cultural anthropology and Japanese language and culture studies. Whoa. Now, can you speak Japanese? Hi. Now, did you ever go to Japan? Yes, I used to live there. Really? Yep. I went there for university. You didn't go there because you were a military brat or no, anything? No, I, I lived in Nagoya, which is in between Tokyo and Osaka. Yes. And I attended Nanzan University, which is a Catholic private school, but they are friends with the Indiana University, and we trade students. So I went over there from 2004 to 2005, and then when I came back, I brought a bunch of Japanese English majors, <laughs> wow. and uh, tutored them in English and helped them. How cool is that? I used to be the Japanese club president. Really? And I am a huge nerd, by the way. Your Japanese pretty good. You keep working at it. I keep working. Like last weekend, I was in New York City for a friend's wedding. Yeah. And uh, her. She married an Italian boy. Yeah. So well, he, that's close to a Japanese. Oh, oh yeah, right? that's really close. <laughs> but all of her family does not speak English. So I translated everything. <laughs> and I got translations from the groom, who was Italian English and lived in New York. So he would Italian? tell me. Yeah. So he would tell me what his family said, and then I would explain to my friend's family what they said, and oh, I was explaining. I was so tired. It's okay. fun. Wow. But yeah. So journalism was not your thing. No, it's not. I, I write really dry case files about. I was trained to write really dry field work reports. Really? 
So when I wrote Haunted Hoosier Halls, if you can tell, I have a sense of humor. Yeah. So I had a big sign over my desk that said, be entertaining. Because for the love of everything good, no one wants to read a dry ghost hunting book. Yes. I fall asleep <laughs> with a dry ghost hunting book. I don't want people to fall asleep with this one. So I found urban legends, like the uh, Hatchet Man of McNutt. McNutt is a residence hall at IU's campus. And a hatchet man brutally murdered one of the co-eds one you Thanksgiving know, weekend. It seems to be a thing going on there with university halls. The bludgeoning yeah. or something, or, or the hangings. That's yes. the other one. We had a show and, and the hangings. We were like, okay, what is it? A hanging? A bludgeoning? Is yeah. it a janitor? Is it a uh, suicide? A, a, you know, some somebody's girlfriend left them so they're jumping yeah. off the roof or vice versa yeah. you know it's like what the heck what is wrong with the universities well Can't they do anything more creative like getting eaten alive by snails or oh oh i got some creative oh, stories really? okay let's thankfully go. thankfully the mcnutt hatchet man story is an urban legend it is known okay. as the roommate's death and i was talking to um mike and i just forgot his last name he's one of the guests here Cleaned, yes. We were he's, comparing. He's on our show all the yes. Um, he also is into history. And the two of us were comparing notes to our universities. We both have cases of the roommate's death. His has a piano involved. It's far more artistic. Mine has a bludgeoning. <laughs> I'm like, mine is horror, 80s horror grade gory. Um, I have another urban legend from IU, which is about the girl in the yellow dress of Reed Hall. Oh. Reed Hall, I lived across from Reed Hall when yes. I was there, and it is a large freshman sophomore dormitory. However, the sixth floor is just all suites where two people have their own room and they share a bathroom. And I have two stories. The first one happened in the 1960s, so they say. A lot happened in the, in the 60s, 60s, and I think a lot of them are walking around now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There was a girl and a guy who were madly in love, and the girl was beautiful, slender, long black hair, beautiful brown eyes. The man doesn't have a description. <laughs> we could tell who the important one was in this relationship. And she liked yellow. Okay. She did not live in Reed Dormitory, but he did. He was a, sur a surgery medical student. They were very volatile, however, constantly getting into arguments to the point where residents of Reed Hall would escape them, go somewhere else. His dormitory was on the third floor, which is just your standard dormitory to, to a room. One night, around Halloween, they had a formal party at the residence hall. She wore a beautiful yellow dress, kind of the 1960s puffy dress. In the middle of the dance, they get into a fight and they storm out of this dance. Hmm. They go up to his room. Hmm. He takes one of his surgical knives oh. and slices off her face. My, now that's making a statement one way yeah. or another. Whoa. She dies immediately, blood loss. And he takes her body and hides it in the tunnels next to the laundry room in the basement of Reed Hall. That could be a wonderful stench. Oh, yeah. Well, she didn't last. She wasn't there very long. Okay. Thankfully, she had lots of friends and family who immediately recognized she was gone. And they wanted to save her face or wanted to save face. Yes. Okay. 
So they immediately pinpoint it was this boy. And the police come up and they search his room and they find her face stuffed See? in Somebody his sock drawer <laughs> oh as a God. memento. Oh my gosh. He just wanted to save face. The yeah. scary thing is people still see this ghost. Oh, my. She floats along the third floor, faceless, just blood everywhere, in her yellow dress, reaching out, trying to grab students. Ooh. She's also been blamed for equipment going malfunctioning, uh, stereos blasting sound, locking people out of the rooms, and then your general cold spots, weird smells, whatnot. Is there any other issues with people putting on makeup and really going wacky with their mascara and, and no. rouge? No, okay. No, it isn't that. Okay. Thankfully, this is just an urban legend. We cannot prove. I looked through all the documents. There, the time era in which they give, Reed Hall didn't exist. There was nothing ah. there. So that... Louis said, that's what I do. I find stories and I just rip them apart and say, this is historical fact and this is not, therefore it's not right. However, I do have a few true ghost stories from Reed Dormitory and they involve shadow people. Love it. Go ahead. One of my friends who was a Japanese major along with me, she knew that I loved the paranormal and she related this story on to me. It happened to her. She lived on the sixth floor in one of those suites. She was the only one, however, the suite next to hers that they, they would attach at the bathroom was unoccupied. And it was locked by the janitor by the, from the outside, from the hallway, and also from her bathroom. So no one could get in. It's locked. She couldn't even get into the other room. She wakes up at around 3 a.m. one night to find her bathroom lit and the shower running. Oh, wow. And a shadow she can see from underneath the door. And she's like, well, this isn't right. There's no one here. So she gets up. She's fairly tenacious. She gets out of bed and she opens the door and there's no one in there. Oh, my. Furthermore, the shower wasn't running. It was dry. The Whoa. sink was dry, too. Now that would do it. Yes. There are many cases of a shadow person appearing to students at the foot of their bed, at the door's threshold. They're not even asleep. Sometimes they'll be studying and look up and there is a full-body shadow person standing in a lit room. Oh, my. So there is something there. Yeah. Now, Indiana University is built on donated land and some purchased land from the Dunn family. Okay. It used to be a huge cornfield. A cornfield, but was it? Like, you can't swing a dead cat anywhere without hitting an Indian burial ground. Nope, there are no Indian, Indian burial grounds. We found one. You found a location. Foundly, a haunted location. That does not have an Indian burial oh, ground. Let us celebrate. Hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> there are no Indian burial grounds. <laughs> In However, fact, they knew better because this place was haunted to begin with. Okay. In fact, actually, there's Dunn Cemetery. The family cemetery is on the property, and people swear they hear either babies crying or a grim reaper-type apparition floating through the cemetery. It's an active cemetery. People still get buried there. The most recent was 2005. Wow. And people get married in the chapel that's in the cemetery. So That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. There's actually two cemeteries on campus, Rogers and Dunn. Really? And both of them were farms purchased. No kidding. But, Here's one for you. Hmm? I got to get, get to this because it's driving me crazy. 
the cultural anthropology. Yes. I was an anthropology major. Awesome. Yeah. So um, do you find value to this as far as that research? Value? Yeah. I find it's a really good way of watching our culture evolve. Yeah. You get a lot of information of what people believe in by what urban legends they transmit or the, how they tell and present. With the ghost hunters, you can really tell just their moral values by what stories they relate to one another. And I love how urban legends from Ohio are different from urban legends in Illinois. Just a little bit of a twist. Or even like the vanishing hitchhiker. In Massachusetts, they have the red-headed hitchhiker. Here they have Resurrection Mary. Who I saw, by the way. Have you seen her? Yes. How was she? Quite dead, evidently. <laughs> Pale as all heck, and it was a full moon, and she was glowing like all heck. I thought she was some drugged-out, crazy hippie chick. <laughs> and uh, there she was, walking on the side of the road, mm -hmm. probably no more than five to eight feet away. My wife was sitting next to me, and I'm like, who the heck is... Because there's no sidewalk there. Right. And uh, she's just walking along with pin curls and the, the long uh, French... Um, sleeves. Yeah. And I'm like, this is some whacked out hippie chick. Yeah, quite the flapper outfit. Oh, yeah. And uh, and here, the inside of the car, the temperature dropped probably 40 degrees. Wow. Instantaneously, I was able to see my breath on the window. So I, I had a very unusual experience mm -hmm. pertaining to what this apparition, whose name, mm -hmm. Resurrection Mary. Mm -hmm. Now, was it somebody else? I don't know. I didn't get a driver's license, right. fingerprint, or social security print. number. Nothing. Yeah. So, but I did have that experience. Mm -hmm. But there is that 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 whole um, uh, subject matter mm -hmm. across state to state and culture to culture, and, and from country to country. Really. A lot of our stories. We have one in Indiana known as Hundred Step Cemetery. Yes. And it's a cemetery that's elevated on a hill, mm -hmm. and there are roughly 60 stairs that go up to it yes and the ghost story is that if you go up these stairs backwards and then hold up a mirror or turn around and flash your light the deceased groundskeeper will appear before you and show you how you die oh my gosh the interesting thing is this ori originated as a 16th century english folktale whoa talk about a history trip Man, that thing's and, lingering. Yes, and it used to be performed by it's adolescent like girls. <laughs> really? Yes. It oh. wasn't actually to originally see how they passed away. Yeah. It was to see who their future husband was. They oh. would walk up the stairway of their house backwards at midnight on Halloween oh. with a candle and a mirror. And they would hold up the mirror over their left shoulder and their future husband was supposed to appear before it. If they were never to get married or if they were to die beforehand if they were to die beforehand a skull would show up in the mirror oh if my. they were never to be married it would just remain blank I would really feel bad for a girl who would get a blank and then just trauma oh I'm never getting oh, married yeah. uh, maybe eventually getting married but I think a few of them I know yeah. would have gotten visa bills mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that Actual, that folktale is uh, documented in a poem from Scotland. Really? 
so I can't remember it off the top of my head. Some Scottish lore. Scottish lore, and it uh, with the immigrants that came through. Oh my! Are you a bit? You know, you're a little bit German, but are you a little bit Scott at all? Uh, well, my family is. Yeah. My husband's side of the family is German. Ah, you're the Scott. I'm the Scott. Oh, there and, you go. Uh, I have bright red hair and green yes. eyes. I look like a leprechaun. <laughs> I'm very popular on St. Patrick's Day. But uh, at the same time, if we're looking at contemporary urban legends, there's La Llorona. La Llorona. I don't speak Spanish, so get, forgive me if I just butchered that. <laughs> she is known as the Weeping Woman, and she comes from Mexico. Wow. But now we have the La Llorona of Klein Avenue in Gary, Indiana. How cool Because is that? she moved with the Hispanic residents. Makes sense. She's a lot like Bloody Mary, yeah. but haunts waterways, lakes, uh, rivers, and really? <laughs> puddles on Klein Avenue, apparently. Spittoons. Spittoons. Yeah. But she kidnaps children. Oh, wow. The, urban, the legend goes that she was once a wealthy Mexican woman who yeah. fell in love with a European settler. And she had two children by him, although they were not married. And he ended up leaving her for another woman. Oh. So she killed the children Ooh. and went after him. Sounds like cats. Cats do that. Yeah. She ended up drowning in the process. Now, Not you, cat, but cats. No, yeah, yeah. With a C instead of a K. Yeah. Um, there are different variations of that story. Some wow. say that she killed her children to be with a lover. Some say the lover killed the children. Different variations from where you are. Very interesting. Yeah. So I look at not only American urban legends, but international ones that have made it here. I was just hoping that you carried on that, because that's something I look at. Uh, and In fact, I'll probably be talking to you about mm -hmm. some of the things. One thing in general, and it's, it's a general thing, is that photographic evidence and solid evidence really takes second place to the oral tradition. Yeah. The story is... Important. Most important. It's the key. Yes. And that's actually what will end up living on forever. forever. Now, sometimes like a bad game of telephone, yes. it will get uh, mutilated in some yeah. cases. Uh, it will it evolve. It keeps going. It will keep going on and on and on. Cat, I hope you keep going, girl. Thank you. You're fantastic. Thank you. You rock. Aw. And uh, we got to have you back on. Again, Kat, how do you say your last name again? Coloco. Coloco. Like a writing cloak, And you then can o. check out her site at huntforghosts.com. Sam's voice is going. We'll be right back <laughs> with more of this great conference here in Chicago. Chicago Ghost Conference. Okay, I got 2011. it. I couldn't get it. The chupacabra's got my throat. <laughs> okay, and we'll be right back with Thresholds into Other Realms, Thresholds Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms, and with us now is Cindy Munt. Cindy, how are you doing? I'm wonderful. 
on just kicking along here at this great conference that Ursula put together. Now, now you've been here how many times already? Oh my goodness, I've been here, uh, this is my second time, my second, second time. conference with Ursula, yes. And, uh, what notoriety brings you to be uh, one of the uh, oh, notoriety, exhibitors? That's a really, that's a big yes. word to use. Good gosh, it's a little threatening, quite bluntly. What notoriety? Well, I have a paranormal research team oh, very called good. RIP Midwest. Oh, great. And uh, we've been in inception since the end of 2006. Good. And uh, we tend to work with the more difficult cases of the paranormal. Uh, we work primarily throughout the Midwest states, but we also, I'm sorry, we also work a little bit more global as well. So essentially we go where we're needed for uh, people who need help. Great. Now when you're saying a little more difficult cases or troubling cases, give me an example what that actually entails. Typically our clients have uh, had other paranormal research teams in and haven't had resolve. Okay. And so we come in, we uh, have scientific and more metaphysical techniques that we utilize. So we're not just going in just with the scientific equipment, we're actually kind of approaching things a little bit differently most of the time. So you'll get down to the crystal swinging of the cat over the head? Or, well, or I don't know about exactly that. Yeah, ooh, that's a big question, right? No, not quite like that. I'm a medium clairvoyant. Okay. So I have the ability to see spirits and communicate with them. Um, and how that translates for us is that when we're in an environment, we're able to actually go up to those spirits and ask them directly, you know, what's the problem? You know, um, is, there, is there a communication issue going on in the house? Are you upset about something? Are you just needing to move on to the next place and you don't know how? And it's about figuring that out so we can get everyone to live cohesively in the environment. Or work in that in, as well, because we work in residential and commercial properties. Really? Now, mm -hmm. commercial property, this could, this could be a plus or a minus. Though I, it seems as though most people like haunted places. Some do and some don't. You know, the times, the places that um, like it, they're obviously very quick to advertise it, you know. Um, but there's other places that aren't really thrilled to have that and don't want that reputation under their belt. Um, and those are, you know, we work, um, we're very discreet and we're very confidential in our services. Oh, that's good. You know, so yes. they're able to come to us and have it closed down where we really are able to take care of the business there. You know, for commercial businesses, it's a really scary situation because sometimes they have staff that won't, aren't willing to close. Oh, yes. It's not necessarily always closing. Everyone goes into the nighttime thinking about spirits. But quite bluntly, it could be any time of the day or night. You know that there could be an issue. Um, we recently had a client who they um, none of the males would go down into the basement because anytime a male would go down to the basement, they felt threatened. Really? Mm -hmm. It was very curious. It was interesting as well. They had a storm where they lost electricity. There was a female staff that was down in the basement at the time, and she comes upstairs and she says, "She says, wow. She says, look at this. You put uh, you put lights in." Up and down the the up and down the stairs, so I was able to find my way out. And she's thanking the owner, and the owner says, "I never put any lights in." And the girl says, "No, the whole area was illuminated, so I can find my way out of a building that was built in the late 1800s." And when the lights finally turned back on, she, uh, he had to go and actually prove it to her that there were no lights, in fact, there, and that actually a, a spirit had gone and helped her find her way out. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Now, Pretty you powerful. personally, at yes. one of these locations, what was the most striking or, let's say, striking slash frightening event? Wow. You know, there's so many that, for me personally, being a clairvoyant, um, there's just too many, honestly, to tell you. Um, to go 
to talk about. Um, I think the most interesting event that occurred for me um, was a few years back and I was uh, doing a small production out in Ireland at the time. Oh, nice. And I was, uh, and I don't ever like to know my itinerary. That's something that just goes to my husband, so he knows where I'm at and safe, but I just know the dates that I'm coming and leaving. And um, I had a young female spirit, a very young female spirit, that was coming to visit me. And she started telling me about these places and showing me these places that I was going to be going on my trip. And, uh, and every time I met with the person who was actually organizing the trip, she would always be there and she would sit just very prim and proper, very sweet as she sat there. And she kept showing me the staircase that she fell from. And finally I took the woman, I said, what is with this little girl? You know, and I kept saying, are you related to her? And she says, no, not related to me. Um, and finally she ended up sharing with me that she fell down this long staircase um, and that's how she met her death and that she still visits there. And she just wanted to let me know um, she just wanted to let me know literally that she was going to be around and she was going to help me out. It was really interesting. So she actually showed me three different places, castles that I was going to work within when I was out in Ireland, which is a lot of fun. Now, where, what part of Ireland were you at? I was in Burr County, Ireland, which is right in the middle. But I also did some work in Dublin and a little bit in Killarney as well when I was there. Beautiful country. Oh, my goodness. It was, uh, if you've ever been, it's just beautiful out there. My wife's been out there, and I have a... Um, a draw like you wouldn't believe towards Ireland. I love Celtic music. I love the landscape and the people and the heritage. People are wonderful oh, there. Yeah. Just wonderful there. I highly recommend it. And if it wasn't for the Irish, much of humanity's knowledge would have been lost. They were That's the preservers correct. of yes. humanity when it comes to knowledge. Oh, you're so right. And, and you can see it by their building um, yeah. there that they really go and aspire to, to maintain you know their historical reference and you see that in their architecture there and whatnot and and even when you're downtown Dublin you oh, yeah. see the old part and literally just across the street then they're building the newer part so you get really the both the best of both worlds it's really a wonderful thing it's yeah, great it's now how do we contact you if we'd like to have your service well you can find me at ripmidwest.com yes you can also find me at cindymunts.com and I'm also the newest member of the Chicago Paranormal Detective Team. I'm the, their new medium, um, so I just recently joined their team as well. So you can find me a few different places this morning. Well, great. Now, when you say clairvoyant, yes. are you clairvoyant in the conscious state, or are you a nocturnal clairvoyant? A, B, C, or all of the above? All of the above. So okay. um, I've been able to see and communicate with spirits since literally I was a baby. My parents um, have tape of me as a toddler crawling around on a blanket where you can see me picking up toys and handing them up to somebody that you can't see from the tape. Um, my parents in the background were talking about that they could leave me on this blanket for hours and that I would never go anywhere because I would just be involved in what was going on there. Um, as I got a little older, we'd have gatherings and parties at the house and I would walk around and I would notice that there were people that no one ever spoke to. Wow. And so I'd walk around and saying, are you mad at Uncle Joe? How come you're not talking to Uncle Joe? And I'd go around as a youngster and ask everybody. And unbeknownst to me, Uncle Joe died many years before I was even born. Oh, my god! So people were a little shocked, you know. Now, did you keep a rapport with any member in your family in the afterlife? Are you still Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. And that's one of the benefits of being a medium is that nobody in your life really leaves. It just changes form. 
so they leave the physical body but my father for example still comes to visit me regularly in fact I have a recording from him um, on New Year's when he came to visit me with um, several of my family members wishing me a happy new year oh and you hear them in the recording saying happy 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 new year and they're yelling oh. out um, which is a lot of fun. You're very calm about the subject where some people may be a little standoffish. Now you've been involved in this for a while. You're very my entire life. Your entire life. It's the life. only way I see the world. So this is to you. It's not paranormal. No, it's, it's very normal. Of, very normal. Very normal. Yeah. Uh, and maybe if we could get that message out to more people, it wouldn't be so taboo. You know, um, sadly, a lot of people think um, somehow that when there's some type of spirit activity, they automatically think negatively. You know, and I try to encourage people to not think negative at all, but think of it, what if it was somebody in your family? What if it was somebody that you love dearly? Would you be afraid of them if they came to visit you? Well, chances are your answer is going to be no. No matter if you're a skeptic or not, chances are your answer is going to be no. Of course I'm not going to be afraid. And I really encourage people to look at it in that way because a lot of times when spirits are doing any type of manifestation or activity, they're really just trying to reach out and communicate. Um, and if you think about it, if you can't really just speak out to somebody and get your point across, chances are you're going to try to find another way to do that, yeah. to let yourself be known, whether it be maybe throwing a book on the floor or changing the channel on your TV set, yes. you're gonna, or changing a light, right, and oh, making yeah. the light go on and off. Right. You're going to look for some way that you can go and manifest to let, let it be known that you're there. You know? now, so people it's not necessarily come up to you negative. today and they ask you questions like, what is the most compelling evidence that you could deliver to me, what would you say? Compelling evidence. You know, my favorite pieces of evidence are electronic voice phenomenon. And the reason is for this. Number one, it's black and white. You know, uh, especially if you have video. So when we're doing our electronic voice phenomenon, we have video. So we have all the cameras around the room. We know who is present. We know what was said at the time. So it's a very um, documented situation. Um, and my favorite part as a medium is when I'm sitting and communicating whether it be with a client for a reading or be it with a client, um, a paranormal research client, that we're there and we're able to have the spirit say something and then you hear me repeat it to the people who are in the room. And we have thousands of recordings where that exactly happens. About 89% of my clients when they sit with me end up having electronic voice phenomenon just during regular sessions. So it's not even that we're trying to attain it, they just have a voice recorder on as they sit and talk with me and they have their loved ones coming through and where you're hearing them tell me what to say um, as they sit there, which is, that's my favorite, I would say. Um, you mentioned releasing research. people. Is that much like clearing or cleaning an area or um, there's so many different verbs. There's so many different yeah. adjectives yes. get used and quite honestly, I believe that it gets really confusing. Yeah. Especially these days, even saying you're a medium. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, somebody, I've heard people say that they're a medium, but then when you find out that they're using a Frank's box. Uh, so I'm a medium because I'm communicating with spirit, but what they're not saying is that, well, I'm using this device, an electronic device, yeah. exactly, to make that happen. So yeah. I think for the public, it can be very confusing, quite honestly. Right. Not out of ill intent, just confusing for the for the adjectives that go on for that, like you a, understand? Like a synthetic medium or You something. got it, exactly, <laughs> exactly, you know. Now, you hold any validity to those type of devices? I or think do you that, add, Is there any added value to them? You know, we've, we've tried to utilize all different types of um, pieces of equipment in the research setting. I am never against trying anything. Um, it doesn't hurt to see what's out there, right? And to see, you know, we have had things work. 
we have used uh, we have used uh, the ovulus, for example, to name some things out, and um, you know we have used a Frank's box, and on occasion, if the spirit has enough energy and learns how to manipulate it, for example, when they have to learn how to manipulate the temperature and electromagnetic fields to make the ovulus work correctly, well, wow, that takes a lot of practice to do. Yeah. That's not a spirit that just can come in and say, okay, I'm going to communicate like that, you see? Oh, yeah. So it's about being patient then and, and actually being vocal to say this is how this works. So even when you're recording vi uh, electronic voice phenomenon, you know, it's to tell the spirit here, I need you to talk really loud into this red light that I have here on this little machine because I want to get your voice. Yes. And then if you do an EVP sweep and play it back, because many of those spirits haven't heard the sound of their own voice in a very long time, to say, this is what it sounds like when you're doing it. And then you say, can you speak louder for me so we can get it better? And then how they usually oblige very quickly because wow. they want to be heard. You know, that's something that they want to get across. So the EVP phenomenon is something you hold really up there as a standard of, of quality. Yeah, absolutely. Something of validity. Absolutely, yes, Good. especially in a controlled environment. Good. You know, you can't do it when you got 90 people in a room. No. Like, we're no. sitting in a space like this. You certainly now. couldn't do that, you see? <laughs> but if it's in a controlled environment, yes. absolutely it's something that can be held in high regard. I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Great. Very pleasure to meet all of you. All right, that was Sydney Munson. And when we return, we're going to hear a uh, unheard studio interview with Steve Bassett. That and much more when we return. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. Welcome back to Thresholds and Other Realms. With us, we have our friend Stephen Bassett. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing just great. Thank you. Well, for your listeners that are certainly familiar with the issues at hand um, regarding the extraterrestrial uh, matter as well as the, the government policy, what I call the truth embargo, we've got an important development, and, and that is this. The, the, the White House just launched yesterday a a new quote initiative called We the People. It's on the whitehouse.gov website. They did something similar to this after uh, President Obama was elected in November of 2008 during the transition period where people could put issues up on uh, a website called change.org and um, people could vote on the issues and what happened. And they said, well, we'll take these under consideration the ones with the most votes. And it was pretty chaotic, and there were just huge numbers of issues and huge numbers of votes. It was all well and good. Um, and the UFO uh, matter was represented well. I mean, there were a good 20 or so UFO ET-type issues put up there, which kind of spread the uh, vote a little bit. But this is different. This is three years into the administration, which is having uh, considerable trouble, right? I mean, they're, they're under a lot of pressure. It's been a very difficult three years. They're facing what to some seem insurmountable um, problems. 
Uh, and of course, we're going into the election has already started again. You know, our elections last forever. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and so, and, and it's tied into the open government platform uh, plank that they had run on in in, in two thousand eight, which you haven't heard that much about. But apparently, they're about to revisit that. So we're going to be hearing some pronouncements from the president and others regarding their efforts and what progress they've made in creating more open government. So along those lines, they created We the People. And when you go to WhiteHouse.gov, you go to We the People, and there you will find what I think were now 25 petitions that have so far been submitted by organizations. One of those petitions is the disclosure petition. The, it, the, the wording of this petition is as follows. We, the undersigned, strongly urge the President of the United States to formally acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race and immediately release into the public domain all files from all agencies and military services relevant to this phenomenon. And then there's some explanatory material. As you can see, this is simple. This is straightforward. Uh, it is unambiguous. If... Um, um, it's unambiguous. I mean, if you're someone who does not believe there is an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race, you certainly do not want to sign this petition. <laughs> You've been living under a rock, too. Yeah, but if you are, I would think you would want to. They, uh, What goes up is the first name and last initial and a city, state, or country, usually a city. So uh, anybody around the world can sign. Um, and... There are approximately, based on the polling, which there has been a lot of polls, about 160 million people now in the U.S., if the polling numbers are correct, mm -hmm. that believe the E.T. issue is real, that there are extraterrestrials in those craft we've been seeing flying around. Well, 160 million is a lot of people, but the numbers around the world are similar to the numbers in uh, the United States. And uh, depending upon, well, various polls I've looked at, I think it's uh, very possible that the number of people worldwide is in the 40% range. Now that's about... <laughs> Wait a minute. They... They're after you today. <laughs> Hang on a second. Hey, I think they are outside my door. Wait a minute. Hey, take me. You'll have, you'll have a live... Breaking news story, Steve Bassett, taken in by a SWAT team in L.A., charged with crimes against the state. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, uh, you make too many waves, they get rid of you. Well, I do try to cause trouble. <laughs> so uh, how many uh, signatures do you have already on this? What now? How many signatures do you have on this now? Well, in the first, it's been about 20 hours, we're up to 2,200 signatures. Um, oh, that's good. The way the petition works is... Any, any petition that receives 5,000 signatures within 30 days uh, will be, in fact, reviewed by White House uh, staff and then assigned to the appropriate uh, elements within the administration for consideration. That's not my concern. Mm -hmm. You know how that goes, right? Yeah. Uh, my concern is how many, how, many fig how many signatures can we put in that box? Uh, over the next 30 days or so. Uh, there are, as I say, based on polling, worldwide about 2.8 billion people, I think, that if, if, and if privately asked, anonymously asked, 
Mm-hmm. Do you think the ET presence is real? Would say yes. Well, we don't need all 2.8 billion, but it would be nice if we had a big number here. So, essentially, uh, PRG, Pattern Research Group, launched this petition um, about three weeks before it went up. Uh, the information is located at uh, disclosurepetition.info. And there you can see the language, and there you can see the link directly to the White House petition. Now, as it happens, that link is kind of, kind of. It's a short little link. It's not, it's not long at all. And so, for for those who, for whatever reason, uh, can't uh, get to it or, or would like to have it now, uh, it, it's this. It's wh.gov.gov forward slash g and then capital K, capital C. It is case sensitive. So it's small letter, wh.gov forward slash G and then capital K, capital C. That takes you right to the petition. But if you go to uh, disclosurepetition.info, you can see it. If you go to Paradigm Research Group, I've got links to this petition. And at uh, the Disclosure Petition site, there's also a little bit of information as well as banner links for webmasters to grab. What I'll do, too, is I'll put it on our sites for you, too. Please. And, of course, th- this is a full-out, um, I've, I've, I've committed my total time to this. Um, within five hours of the petition going active yesterday morning when they, when they turned the site on, when they turned the We the People site on, mm-hmm. uh, I had sent out the international press release, uh, a PRG update to my many thousands of my mail list, plus a uh, interview request to about 120 radio and television, including mainstream media. Uh, also posted it on all the uh, PRG Facebook pages, got mm-hmm. six, as well as got it up on about 50 groups that are obviously interested in this subject. Uh, what, what, we, what we have here is a, a, a very rare and very clear opportunity for a very powerful referendum on this issue, uh, if you get a big number of signatures, at some point the news uh, media going to going to take notice. And they're going to get some news articles on it. Well, I know it's growing fast. I looked yesterday and it was at 400, I believe. And you said, "What are you at today? 2,000 something?" 2,200. But we need we need big numbers here. And, oh, I and, know. And and you get that by going viral. And and I've talked a lot about this. You, I, I know you know what that means. But right. for those in your audience that don't, going viral is actually a very significant thing uh, in our world today. It is an Internet worldwide web phenomena. And while in, in, in most cases it's, it's kind of a funny thing, uh, it can be amusing, but uh, it's actually quite serious. Let, let me give you an example. Well, that's actually when an article or something takes on a life of its own, too. It's a link, it's a link spread thing. In other words, everybody knows that uh, hyperlinks... Uh, can be spread through the internet exponentially. All right. Some person passes the link to 10, 10 passes it to 100, 100 to 1,000. And, and what, what, what motivates somebody to pass a link is, is a mystery. It, it is, it, it's, you never know. Yeah, I understand that exactly. <laughs> you just never know, but when you strike the right tone, boom. One of the most famous viral events on the internet was a number of years ago, 
And a lot of the virality turns up in videos without question. I mean, that's where you see a lot of it without mm -hmm. question. Uh, and it was a young fella who became famous for the Numa Numa video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, this has been a while now, but he took a broomstick and did a little dance in his bedroom there, uh, doing the Numa and saying Numa Numa. And let me tell you, this took off. And the last time I checked, I think we're talking 60 million views. I know that actually just went insane. Yeah. And there have been others. Um but there have also been some serious stuff that's gone viral. But let me let me really get to the point here, and that is that if you go to YouTube and do a YouTube search on UFO, right, uh, which is pretty pretty straightforward. There's only right. things that that refers to. One of which is the band UFO, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you sort it by view count. What you get is the top videos, and what you find is that the top UFO video in terms of view count on the web, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this because I want to be very very accurate here. I don't want to. Yeah, I've noticed that we have to be accurate, otherwise uh, one of our listeners will be happy to correct us. Oh, absolutely! I'm putting YouTube in right now. I'm popping the search button. Up it comes, and I'm going to filter, and I'm doing it by view count. The top one right now is at 36.7 million. After that, 18.7 million, 15.8 million, 14.4 million, 10 10.6, 9.8, 8.7, 8.5, 8.1. Well, look at those numbers. That's telling you something. These are big numbers. Now, you, you don't get those numbers without going viral. And these are all about UFOs. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that they have in common of these first 20 or so that are all up in the multi-multi-million range is they're all hoaxes. Yeah, isn't that a bitch? Well, it's 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 a not it's it's a bitch, but not uh, not 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 as bad as you think. Because here's the deal: can we both agree that the reason that 18 million people went over to see this one video about UFOs in Haiti, they didn't go there because they heard it was a hoax? Oh God, I want to go over and see this hoax. Oh yeah, that's true. They went there because they wanted to actually see it. Exactly. And so 18 million people, well, not that, there's been some obviously duplicates, but many millions of people have seen that video and they've seen quite a few others. And so that is going viral. So we know that in the UFO realm, this certainly happens. So the question is, can a link to a petition on the White House website calling for disclosure also go viral? In other words, if, if there's 18 million people that will watch the UFO Haiti, are there 9 million people that would go sign that petition? Because I can tell you that if 9 million people were to sign that petition, it would be a major international news story. Oh, definitely. It would be huge. And, of course, in fact, it'll get long before it gets to a number like that. If it just, hell, if we could just get more signatures than the legalized marijuana petition, which always is number one, I mean, that's... <laughs> I think it's right now about 17,000, yeah. it would be news. And, of course, if it's news, it gets up on a little TV, gets little articles in the paper, people read it, more people sign. I and can't if, imagine how it couldn't get that many hits. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a great subject. Well, the marijuana thing, obviously, is extremely well organized. And well, not, well, not that one, but, yeah, that, that one does I, good. I'm motivated, but we have our own community. And, and so what PRG has done is tried to seed the initial virality here um as i say it's been the link has been put up on 
YouTube on many, many pages. Uh, an international press release has gone out. I'm going to probably do about 60 to 70 radio interviews between now and mid-October. Um, and uh, you know, website, um, news list, and what have you. So the potential is there, but people have got to pass the link on. Um, and this is the real deal. This is not a hoax. This is the opportunity for a lot of people to say, I want this information out. I want this acknowledged. Now, look, there are several million contactees based on the numbers that I'm seeing out there. Hell, if it's just the contactees were to sign the petition. Yeah, that would do it right there alone. And I do know that, that the way they're structuring it, which is interesting, and I'm, I'm somewhat a little surprised they did this, that they are, they're putting up a first name and a last initial. So there is a certain anonymity there. Uh, without question. And Which is a good thing because a lot of people don't want to say their name. Some, Well, some people are reluctant to be associated with this issue still, though that, that, that number is dropping every year as, as this issue grows and grows and grows. As far as that goes, Steve, you should let your listeners know that uh, you have to actually register for this, but all you need is a name and an email address. You don't have to say where you live or nothing because some people might be gun-shy when they see yeah. they got to register. Yeah, they don't. You don't ask for an ad. They they do have a a, a box there for the uh, for a zip code. Right, but that's but, it. But I think it's optional because I've got people all over the world emailing me and saying, "Hey, I'm signed up." Right, Britain, Britain, Australia, Canada. So uh, that's the other cool thing. Apparently, anyone in the world can sign up, and that's that's not un unreasonable, because I mean there are some issues that are so totally, really confined to the United States that a whole bunch of uh, non-U.S. citizen signatures might seem inappropriate, but I think mm -hmm. agree that the U.S. government's policy on extraterrestrial reality and the and, and the embargo, truth embargo, which is as led, has implications for the entire world. So it's totally yeah, correct. So that's the deal. The disclosure petition. It's at the WhiteHouse.gov uh, website. If you go there, interestingly enough, if you go to the WhiteHouse.gov and just go to We the People, you can you can search the petitions. Now, another thing that intrigues me here is that as of about 24 hours since they they turned it on, maybe 26 hours, uh, th there's only been 25 petitions submitted. Now, they, they, uh, they uh, announced this thing 30 days ago. I'm sorry. They yeah, a little over 30 days ago to give organizations time to put a petition together and uh, to uh, uh, build up some, some initial support and what have you. Uh, and, but yet there's only 25. I note that with interest. Now, I know that's going to grow. Mm -hmm. But right now, the petition to... To, uh, for the government to end the truth embargo and, 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 for, and announce or formally acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence is one of just 25 petitions. So it stands out pretty well, and it's doing quite well compared to just about all the other petitions, save for, of course, and of course the, we, have to, we have our priorities here, mm -hmm. the, uh, the petitions to legalize marijuana, which at this point is at 18,254. Uh, so... Um, it, it, we have a we have a referendum here that anybody in the world can go look at. They can see it. They can kind of see that people are signing up for this. And so the only question remains: How many signatures 
can we put behind this very basic request of the United States government, which I will reiterate one more time, right? And then we move on to another little thing that's cooking. Um, the petition, the formal petition, the full petition as listed is we, the undersigned, strongly urge the President of the United States to formally acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race and immediately release into the public domain all files from all agencies and military services relevant to this phenomena. And then we, they allow a little bit of explanatory material, uh, not a lot, but what is shown here I think is relevant too. Uh, what you will read when you go is that hundreds of military and government agency witnesses have come forward with testimony confirming this extraterrestrial presence. Opinion polls now indicate that more than 50% of the American people believe there is an extraterrestrial presence and more than 80% believe the government is not telling the truth about this phenomena. The people have a right to know the people can handle the truth. That's so well said. <laughs> that was cooking there now. There is another referendum out there that people can, can jump on. And uh, uh, obviously, I want to continue to promote. And that is World Disclosure Day. Uh, World Disclosure Day was to put in, in play by PRG back in July the 1st. There had been an attempt to get one going uh, in 2010 by a, a, an activist blogger named Steve Becko and Jeffrey West, I think, was involved. And they gave it a shot. They designated the day August 2nd. But it di just didn't catch on. It, it, it did not, whatever, didn't resonate. And they, may not, they, did, they may not have the resources the PRG has. Right. And so I said, look, let's, give a sh let's take another shot at this. Nothing surprising about that. I think Earth Day had like four attempts before it finally locked in. And, of course, now mm -hmm. Earth Day is a huge a huge uh, phenomenon designated day. Disclosure Day was launched on July the 1st. It, it, the date designated is July the 8th. Uh, so obviously, seven days after it was launched, there's the first one. Right. And July the 8th was chosen for World Disclosure Day, which you can learn all about at worlddisclosureday.org, straightforward, uh, was because July the 8th was the day, actually it was late in the day, it was early evening, that... Uh, General Roger Ramey, the head of uh, Army Air Force Base and in, in, um, command in Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, brought out some tinfoil that might have been wrapped around some fish he had in the freezer and basically said, oh, no, we didn't really capture a saucer, as the early press release said. We, we, uh, it was a raw wind weather balloon. And, and that was kind of, at least for me, the informal beginning of the, the truth embargo, which really did not get solidified until after the Robertson panel in late uh, 1952, uh, and then of course the truth embargo really got going, and from then on it's it's held fast, 64 years, um, and so we designated July the 8th to kind of close the circle there, and um, uh, you know publicized it pretty well, and when you go there, it's again disclosure day is nothing more than a designated day for people to focus on the need to know the truth about this phenomena to focus on hopefully seeing acknowledgement by the government of, the, of this phenomena, hold events, whatever. It's, it's Earth Day, but it's Disclosure Day. Mm -hmm. And you can endorse it, right? And so there's a simple endorsement uh, process there. It's done by email form. And uh, you can endorse it uh, personally, or you can endorse it organizationally. 
and you can endorse it from anywhere in the world. So as of now, we've got about 4,500 endorsements of World Disclosure Day, including a few notable people, and we're going to continue to, we will highlight any notable organizations or individuals, relatively famous people that, that get behind this. Yeah. Um, but uh, right now, you can go see the signatures of the organizations and the people. And in this case, it is their first and last name. It's the full name. Uh, though it's just, uh, in the case of the U.S., it's the first and last name, city, state. In the case of foreign, first and last name, and the country. Oh, okay. So we're asking people to, to put, put themselves up a little bit more. But I felt it would make it stronger. Um, uh, after all, you're just endorsing the day. You're not actually, you're not, you're not acknowledging you're a contactee or right. saying leave everything going on. You're simply endorsing the concept. And so I think if we can get the endorsements for World Disclosure Day up to about 100,000, that I can generate some media from that. And then once you get some good media, the, the numbers will grow. And, and so right now, there are two very straightforward referenda that people can put their name behind that will help the activist groups, not just PRG, but any of the right. groups out there, to make the case to the media that you need to pay attention here. This is, this is real. One is, of course, the disclosure petition at the White House website. You can find that link at disclosurepetition.info. And the other is the World Disclosure Day, which you can endorse at worlddisclosureday.org. I've actually reposted that numerous times, and there's a link on our site, too, for that one for you. And we're hoping that someone, you know, we, I've kind of put the word out into Facebook. There are some some relatively well-known people that have stepped forward on this issue um, and said things publicly. Hmm. Not superstars, but they're they're known, uh, mostly of my generation. Uh, but uh, they include Robbie Williams, who is a well, actually, he's a he's a Gen X, but he's he's a huge rock star and. And UK, Peter Andre, of course, a very well-known mu music guy, had many hits. Um, Sammy Hagar, who was actually stated in, a, in his recent autobiography that he's convinced he's a contactee. Yeah, I actually read that. Sammy had a lot of, a lot of big hits. And, and then Dan Aykroyd, who's publicly addressed this issue many times and made it clear that he believes it's true. So we're hoping the word will get passed around and maybe one of them might come forward and, and endorse this petition and or World Disclosure Day. And that will and that's the nature of, you know, we, we live in a celebrity culture. That right. will a huge number of signatures uh, for uh, the, these efforts. In the meantime, we encourage people that, look, we, we're glad that you go and sign the petition. We, we love the fact that you'll sign the Disclosure Day endorsement. But what is really needed is you need to spread the link. You need to use Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, uh, YouTube. Uh, we encourage people to create little YouTube videos about either world. And just plain repost, too, like uh, I'm doing for you. Everybody that has a site should repost it. Mm -hmm. uh, at World Disclosure Day and uh, at DisclosurePetition.info, you can find manners that you can use, grab, to attach a link to if you've got websites. All of these methods uh, is how things go viral. And if enough people throw enough stuff into the social media, enough links, and it's the link that's critical, uh, 
at some point a critical mass gets reached and you have a chain reaction. This is the best way to explain virality. It has to do with somebody seeing something a certain number of times. If a particular thing crosses somebody's uh, computer screen, you know, three, four, five times, at some point they go, I'm checking this out. I mean, that's just that's just the way it is. And that's actually how your petition is gone now, too, because I've been seeing it four, five, six times at a time with multiple people I know. Uh, yeah, and, and, and so right now it's out 26 hours. It's at 2,200, so it's running about 100 an hour. No, we're not at critical mass, obviously, but, hey, it's only been 26 hours. There's more than enough time for this to go viral. Uh, so I encourage people with Twitter accounts to get that link. Now, there is a huge link for this site, right? And if you go there, there you know, you can copy the actual link to the page. Right. But it's a big, long link. So what they, they provided, the, the White House actually provided a, the short link. Uh, and that short link is, and, and, and that's the one you will see at my website, you will see it at disclosurepetition.info. It's a simple one, though. It's just wh.gov forward slash g and then capital KC, uh, case sensitive. If you just put those into a browser, you will get the petition. That's the way to go. When you get those huge names, people can't find them. <laughs> Yes, and if you go to whitehouse.gov and just go to the We the People section, um, again, you can and just open petitions, you can find it very easily, because right now there's only 25 petitions up there. So uh, it's easy to find, it's easy to sign, and uh, it's in play. So that's, what I, that, that's my stuff. What would you like to know about, John? What's on your mind about this uh, issue? How's the funding going, Steve? Did you get that SETI money yet? <laughs> 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 you know, uh, go to my PRG site. I got one one of the little things there that's in the info set in the center center info area. It the PRG main site is. Uh, uh, I got a, as you know, a while back, uh, Paul Allen cut off the funding to the Allen Array Telescope, so they had to shut it down, which yeah, is felt terrible. major functions for SETI. And I, I did put up links about that right away, because I, I've not been, you know, shy about saying that that Paul was used. In other words, he was sold a bill of goods. Now, look, those 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 arrays, the Allen array, definitely has use in um, radio astronomy, right. which is an important field, and I'm sure that it could be useful to science. But uh, as far as looking for extraterrestrial signals. Uh, it's a joke, and he threw millions of dollars into that, and was was very much taken advantage of. Because so said, their chances of finding that would be better if they left the telescope and just looked outside. <laughs> uh, let me put it this way: if the money that he put into the uh, SETI had been put into the advocacy movement underway, we would have had disclosure years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but eventually, he cuts it off, and so they're kind of in suspension, looking to shut down. And lo and behold. Uh, and I like her very much. Um, uh, Jody Foster stepped up and, and gave them, you know, several hundreds of thousands of dollars, and of course lent her name to get them going again. Um, that SETI, you mean? Yeah, SETI. Oh. Now, you know, I'm, I'm, I certainly understand the logic here. I mean, Jody Foster, one of her best-known movies is Contact. 
Right. That was an excellent movie, too. It was a good movie. And, of course, it's about contact, and it's about a signal that gets picked up by the SETI program and all that. I understand. So she, she did this. But I couldn't resist. So I have a little picture of her up there with a link to the article about her giving the money. And, and the wording around that picture is, say it ain't so, Joe. <laughs> Now, now this definitely is going to be over the, is is going to be uh, uh, beyond the range of a lot of your listeners because you got to be, you got to be a baby boomer to get that one. But, but uh, uh, there was a famous uh, scandal called the White uh, Black Sox scandal, and uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson was a s- superstar in that time and one of the best players in baseball, and he got involved in that scandal where they threw the World Series. And there's an absolute famous incident, which is true, and it was in the movie, where he comes out of the courtroom, and this little kid, you know, who is like a big fan of his, you know, standing there, and he looks up at him, and he says, say it ain't so, Joe. <laughs> uh, so I did the same, of course, it's, it's J-O, not J-O. Well, speaking of viral, there you go. That line <laughs> went viral. <laughs> so, yeah, said he is, a, but PRG is still looking for a major funder. We lost a sadly lost the major one of our major funders to cancer last year and uh, uh, took a huge loss on the X conference so because of this the economy just, just uh, several conferences blew up because the economy just stripped audiences completely the economy is terrible right. Sam and I have been saving up to help you we got a dollar so far yeah that's good keep it up. <laughs> put put jars out in local bars and, yeah. <laughs> That's about it, too. If him and I both saved money to help you out, we'd be at about two bucks right now. <laughs> uh, I've got. Uh, I've been in L.A. now for some time trying to build up connections into the entertainment world because there's a huge number of people here interested in the subject privately. And they, obviously, the E.T. subject matter is one of the most successful genres in all of movies, uh-huh. uh, without question. And, of course, the highlight of that is Avatar, which... Uh, did 2.8 billion dollars by the way they just announced that that uh disney world is going to create a whole theme area for avatar oh are they and so who knows how many millions of people are going to go pass through that before avatar 2 comes out in uh in in the fall of 2014. so it's very possible that avatar 2 will in fact do more than 2.8 billion dollars now this is a movie about extraterrestrials uh, it's the most successful one, but as you know, most of the 300 movies about ETs have made money, and some have made spectacular money. So I- I'm trying to make some inroads here. We're hoping that maybe major funding of the advocacy work may be found here. And of course, if that happens, one of the first things that I'll be doing is clearing all the outstanding balances that PRG owes to people that you know uh, some of the speakers. And uh, do you know Bryce Sable? Oh yeah, Bryce is. Uh, you know, Bryce is really good out in Hollywood. <laughs> oh yeah, he's part of the group I've been working with, and he's got a lot of projects going, and uh, one of the good guys. And he's his his involvement in this issue, I think, is critical because he's a big player, and I think it, it may encourage some other people to get involved. Uh, and of course, he and Richard Dolan wrote the book AD After Disclosure, which is right. a book. Uh, so there's there is a lot of good things going, but you know these. You know, I can't imagine a worse time. It was always difficult to get funding for an advocacy work in this genre. Mm-hmm. But we're now in the middle of one of the worst and scariest financial periods in our history. And so it's brutal. Uh, but, you know, the work still has to go forward. The issue is no less important 
because America is having economic problems. And so the advocates have to find a way to get the funding. And right. we can do that. And then uh, any debts that PRG still has will be paid off in full. And, uh, and I will, I'm going to strive to be far more careful uh, in the future. I'm, I'm not going to allow my, the, 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 the issue and its importance to uh, cause me to take risks. Right. You get a hold of somebody like Bill Gates, you know, somebody with a few billion. <laughs> sure. Yeah, but the next time I have lunch with them, I'll, uh, I'll bring it up. So that's the latest on that. L.A. and the L.A. area is, is really becoming a major center for UFO, uh, the E.T. UFO issues, actual politics. Uh, the MUFON Symposium, which was highlighted by an amazing speech by Story Musgrave, was held uh, down in Orange County not just not that long ago. Uh, this coming weekend, there is a huge 3D music film festival that's held every year uh, up in Hollywood, centered around Hollywood and Vine. It's it's backed up by the uh, produced by the, the Dream Factory, and this year uh, it's a four-day event. But on Sunday, the last day, they're actually holding a a disclosure concert. Uh, as part of the function, because the producer is high on this issue and and is a supporter of Stephen Greer. And so this concert is going to uh, raise money for the Disclosure Project and Stephen Greer's work. Uh, and that's right here in Hollywood. Uh, and, and, and people want to learn about that. They just they can go to DiscloseureConcert.com. So that's kind of notable when you think yeah, of it. That's actually pretty cool. Plus, UFO sightings in general are becoming more rapid they're everywhere you're starting to hear about them on the, the main news now which you never did before sure plenty of sightings and and, and even and the hoaxes are getting better and that but it but and then and then there's uh, another con, con uh, the the uh the conscious life expo which is a pretty well-known event here in la it's now going uh, went twice a year and so their second one this year is, is, is uh, next weekend, September 2830. Uh, and there will be a number of speakers on UFO ET issues at the Conscious Life Expo at the LAX Hilton. And they have typically in between three, four, five, six thousand people come through there. So I'm going to be on a panel with George Norrie and, and uh, uh, a number of other researchers and so forth. I think that is Saturday at 2 p.m., and then I'm giving a workshop uh, at 10 on Sunday. Well, that sounds good. Make sure you bring your uh, donation cup with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, again, that, that's another event that's going on. Uh, there's also an event coming up in the heart of America. It's the first time I'm aware of, of a comp conference in this uh, part, or in this area, in, in Louisville, Kentucky, called the Pythagoras Conference, and uh, uh, you can, you can, uh, I have links to that on my website, or you can just do a search on Pythagoras Conference, that's going to be in Louisville, that's, that's going to be 16 through 18 December, uh, okay. later this year. Um, meanwhile, uh, there's events, I think there's another event coming up in LA, under the, um, uh, Awaken Aware, by the way, is is a conference that's now being put on annually by the the Camelot Project Camelot. Now that 
That's going on this weekend. Yeah, I yeah. just heard uh, Richard Dolan talking about that one. He's going to be on that. And so just do a, you know, you can get the link to that at my, in my conference section at the PRG site, or just do a search on Awake and Aware conference, and you can get that conference. And that's, that's, that's this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, again, L.A. Uh, is really cooking with events, uh, symposiums, plenty of speakers, and, of course, one extraterrestrial film after another, coming out and you know the latest is cowboys and aliens which has done about 160 million i still haven't got a chance to see that yet but i really want to it looks good well it's got all the bells and whistles but yeah and it did 160 million it's still going to lose money because it cost 160 million uh but there's other et movies in the works they're going to be coming out in the next 10 months they're just cranking them out one after another because the interest in the subject is that great and actually, if they keep pumping these movies out, there's going to be more interest, which works out better for people like us. Well, look, the effect of the over 300 ET movies that had ETs in them that have come out since 1951 uh, has made the subject virtually universally known. I mean, it, it's hard to find anybody in the world that doesn't know what UFO means or what extraterrestrial means. Yeah, that's true. Assuming you're using the right word in their language. I mean, it's virtually universal to the world. And the, and the entertainment industry's done this. And so it's played an extremely important part in acclimatizing, acclimatizing us. And what does that mean? What it means is, is that, you know, these uh, statements you hear about, oh, the economy's going to collapse, religion's going to collapse, people are going to go nuts, they're going to strip naked and run down the middle of the street if disclosure <laughs> is acknowledged. It's all nonsense. I know, it's uh, ridiculous. It'll be the most profound event in human history, but it's also going to be pretty anticlimactic, frankly. And people are going to probably go, yeah, okay, well, it's what I heard, right? Are they like the ones in Alien, you know, or are they like the ones in, you know, uh, Close Encounters of a Third Kind? Because if they're like the ones in Aliens, eh, it could be a problem. Well, the not Independence Day, they, they weren't exactly too friendly. <laughs> too good either. Uh, I don't think they'll be like those. Um, but... They're there, they're here, and it's no longer acceptable for the world's people to be lied to about it by their own governments. It's it's really undermining the social contract. There are numerous countries that have already admitted to their people about it, too, isn't there? Uh, not quite. No? no I country. thought I've heard that numerous countries have admitted it. No, no, no. Uh, no uh, country has acknowledged the ET presence. However, uh, since 2000, about a dozen countries have released thousands of files. Okay. Proactively, in other words, they weren't badgered; they just did it. And tens of thousands of files have been released from about a dozen countries about reports and stuff. Some classified, some not. And the effect of that has been to raise the interest dramatically, and also create thousands of news stories. Um, and and but this is not this is actually an exopolitical matter. What I mean by that is that. I am convinced that the reason these countries are doing that is not so they can create server space for other stuff. They are releasing these files uh, to put pressure on the U.S. to end the truth embargo, because the U.S. is still leading this embargo. Right. And they are still apparently not ready to preempt us, so they're putting pressure. Now, there are two countries... There's been a certain, there has been a limited release in Russia, but not 
not extensive, but there has been some developments there. There's two countries that, that are in a different place. Uh, in other words, the files being released from New Zealand and Canada and France and United Kingdom and Brazil and Mexico and all that, that that's part of our, the coalition, I guess you could say, of the willing that are sending a message. That Russia and China are not in that coalition per se. They're in a special place. Um, China and the Soviet Union had absolutely no interest in allowing the ET reality to become known or acknowledged or part of public, uh, part of the public. Uh, I was thought I heard that the Soviet Union was actually releasing quite a bit recently. I'm not aware of it. What they did was they announced about two years ago that they were going to release some files regarding their submarine contacts under. Oh, okay. But I'll tell you, I have not seen the follow-up there. But just the announcement itself stirred quite a bit of interest. Again, these two countries were ideological control states, and they had no interest in, in, in adding uh, or putting that information out, because as far as they were concerned, it was not going to help them operate. Uh, now, since the Cold War ended, obviously Russia's gone capitalist, and the, and, and, and the People's Republic of China has gone through substantial changes, particularly in the area of economic reform. They've also, they've also developed a substantial space program. Uh, we're even hearing that they may be putting their own space station up. They have plans to go to the moon, etc. And so, and then of course Russia desperately wants to be seen as a superpower again. So, uh, where we stand now is is that Russia and China have to be viewed as candidates uh, for breaking the truth embargo. Right. Well, I've always told Richard Dolan, too, that I, I kind of think maybe the aliens will finally break it. They might make contact themselves. Well, they can do that anytime they want, but as I've said many times, we don't want that. No. <laughs> Not a good thing. Uh, if the aliens force disclosure... In other words, the aliens, by taking some uh, extreme action, force nations to disclose. Uh, it will do huge damage to the social contracts. It was like Stephen Hawkins isn't, uh, says we're not going to like it when they appear. Well, he, he, he's saying it might be dangerous, uh, which I thought was interesting. Uh, I'd like to know how he knows that. But... More importantly, Stephen Hawking sort of acknowledged that they exist, and that was probably the most important thing about that little vignette. Um, he can now say, well, you know, I told you they existed. <laughs> so right now, the disclosure thing is, is really vulnerable more than ever because I view a kind of race going on here. I, I think there's a, a, a disclosure race, like the space race, the arms race, where various countries are perhaps taking measures, steps, that could lead to them being the first one to, to go forward. And, and I tell you, the, the first nation to end this embargo is going to have a huge historical legacy from it that's going to be very oh, massive. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's a brass ring here of considerable value and how long are these other nations going to wait for the United States to go first before they decide to grab that ring for themselves? Right. Uh, you know, the United States' influence is not on the ascension. It's on the decline. 
Our economic power is not ascending, it's declining. Our world image is not ascending, it's declining. And so the idea that we can just demand na dozens of nations to do what we want them to do, I don't think that's the case now. And, and, and so again, those in government that still have decision-making capabilities here, and by and large, those are operating in the national security arena in classified realms, not, not the Congress. But those that are in that zone have got to make a decision whether they want to risk another nation ending this embargo and then having to follow suit and follow that. It would actually be to the advantage for the United States to do it. Well, you know, we, we started this embargo, and if we don't end it, we're going to historically get all the, the criticism for by those. Some will, some will not criticize, but for those that are inclined, I'm talking historians and others, all the criticism for doing the embargo in the first place, for extending it so long after the Cold War, but no, no benefit from ending it. So we get all the downside. We get no upside. I mean, th th there's a lot at stake here, uh, and, and that's just the beginning. I mean, as you know, we can talk all day about right. the potential benefits of disclosure. Uh, but th that's what's at stake here. Just because it's not, you know, on the, on the news every day, uh, I mean, you, you can, you know, the, the news is weird. I mean, it can spend thousands of hours covering, you know, a debt ceiling issue. Mm -hmm. But an issue of this magnitude, I mean, you literally got to, you know, you've got to uh, just push the hell out of them to get but them. There is an improvement, though. I mean, I, you are seeing more and more stuff pertaining to this now where you, before you never did. Oh, absolutely. Um as you know, at paradigmresearchgroup.org, I have a media watch section that's now over 5,000 articles, uh, mainstream articles now, English language, not not alternative UFO stuff, or UFO publications, all right? We're talking mainstream publications. Uh, and we'll probably log in almost 1,000 this year. So it's been running almost 1,000 plus, and that, that's just the representative articles. The actual total number, because there's a lot of repetition is, you know, 2,000 plus a year. Uh, so there are tons of articles being written, and I, and I read them all, and I can tell you quite um, with confidence that I would say one out of 100 I would call a ridicule piece. Oh, yeah. Maybe two out of 100 tops where somebody is, 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 is going, yeah, this is all silly, this is all nonsense, and what have you. Most of them are straight reporting or positive Right, in some way. That's so, actually a good thing, because before it would be about 98% making fun of us. <laughs> well, there, it's varied over the years, but the, the truth is there is a very strong misconception amongst the public, and, and, and more importantly, amongst journalists, who think that the default position on this issue is, is, is ridiculed journalism. It is not. You find it more at the very high end, the Washington Post, the Time Magazine, right. and times where, where you will see some god-awful articles uh, and you're thinking, well, gee, if the coverage is kind of straight at some of the mid-range publications, why do these top-end uh, publications continue to put out these ridiculous pieces? And the best answer I can give is that the truth embargo was primarily focused on the top-end. In other words, the government had got to sort of keep the, the networks in line, the original three, and that's all there were for a very long time, 
many decades, and the major papers and some of the key magazines, like Time, and get them in line, get them sort of on board. And so even now, these top-end ones are the ones that will, will occasionally produce just utterly absurd uh, adolescent idiotic insulting pieces on this issue whereas you drop down into uh you know less major papers and and some of the cable network and so forth you're actually seeing some pretty good coverage so again all of these main all the networks the new york times the washington post the la times chicago tribune trust me in the post-disclosure world they got some serious explaining to do because we have the record of all these articles. We, we, they're all there. Right. So they're going to have to explain to people how they you know, blew this so badly and how they could write and produce stuff like that. And the answer may be, hey, that's, we were told to do it. I mean, that was the deal we had. National security, we're going to belittle this issue. Or they can say, well, we're just idiots. Yeah. They could say they were victims of the truth embargo. They, they realized that the government was had made such an effort to isolate this issue and they just bought into the propaganda and they'll they'll apologize and we'll move on but believe me they have some answering to do definitely a little bit ago you were mentioning the space race steve i think it was you i was talking to last time we were talking about nasa closing down and everything and i was saying this isn't going to last and lo and behold we got a brand new space program going already well i don't know what you mean by brand new space program what what have you heard well, I mean, the NASA said they're completely closing down and they were going to use private contractors, and now all the news is about the new rocket program they're doing. Ah, uh, rocket program, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's not a new space program. This is a new rocket. Um, uh, yeah, as I said before, well, I've said a number of times, the, shuttle, the end of the shuttle program was important to disclosure. Uh, and this is getting into some deeper stuff here, but... Uh, NASA has always been caught in the middle of this embargo. I mean, it's uh, I, I, I have a great deal of sympathy for NASA. Mm -hmm. It was created in 1958. Uh, the Space Act that created it, the very language of that act, and you can go to my website and see it. You can actually see the Space Act and the language I'm referring to made it quite clear that there was no way that NASA could, could, could go... Uh, public with anything regarding extraterrestrial stuff, no matter what it found, saw, that that was national security and that would go directly to Department of Defense. So NASA could find 10 bases on the moon filled with extraterrestrials, and we're going to be able to say anything about it. Uh, so whatever, so all of that had what happened outside of NASA. So NASA has to pursue the space program, but can't do anything to spur interest in intelligent extraterrestrial life, about far as they could go would be possibility of uh, remnants of life, molect I mean, um, at very low uh, cellular level, and, and that was most epitomized by the 1997 press conference about the Mars rock. That's as far as I could go. Okay. So they have been just in a box on this, uh, between a moon rock and a hard place, you know what I mean? Uh, and I don't, I don't envy them. Uh, but uh, the fact is, is that people in NASA, how many I don't know, and have all, and and this has been the case since it was born. Have known there's an extraterrestrial presence now, but they still had to have a space program, right? right? And it couldn't it couldn't be using any anti-gravitic saucers because that would be just a little awkward now, wouldn't it? Yeah. And so the heavy stuff, of course, is being conducted 
And so there's, an, there's another space program, a black space program, that is being conducted for national security, and they get to use better technology. Now, disclosure, of course, would ultimately resolve, re result in the outing of the other space program, the outing of the military uh, program. And, it's, uh, and it would also ultimately, and probably wouldn't be long, Outing of the fact that we've had anti-gravitic craft for quite some time. Well, what do you think they're doing now? It's, it seems like a step backwards. You know, we're, we're sending up rockets again. I don't, I don't follow what the strategy is there. Again, whatever we do, we have to use rockets. I mean, the government could just shut everything down altogether and say, look, we're just not going to do anything. And people would be upset and want to know why. And the answer can't be, well, you know, we've actually got saucers, but we can't use them. And we don't want to waste money on rockets. No, no. The rockets, the whole damn thing. This is a front. In other words, they have to spend a lot of money and they have to use old technology because the truth embargo prevents them from publicly using the good stuff. They can only do that in black programs. And so ultimately, the truth embargo results in the confirmation that we've had anti-gravitic propulsion for some time. Now, this is awkward and it's probably most awkward and, and, and the most probably publicity will be about the astronauts who died. In other words, the families of the 14 astronauts who died in the shuttle are probably going to be a little peeved that those astronauts didn't have to go up in those shuttles. Yeah, that, that was just that, for show. <laughs> well, I mean, the, you know, the, the shuttle program did do things. I mean, there was a, there was a functional program there. Correct. But the shuttle is an extremely dangerous craft. Now, they're, they're going to be upset about that. But regardless, I think... If, if everybody will put their public relations hat on for a second, if disclosure happens on Monday, right, and three weeks later it's finally learned, because the press are going to be pressing the hell out of the government, that we've had anti-gravitic, our own anti-gravitic craft, saucer-type craft, since maybe the 60s, and then there's another scheduled shuttle launch for like a month from then, you see the, you see the public relations problem here? Okay, and so for the shuttle program to be shut down and done, it doesn't mean they don't have a problem PR-wise, but it's a hell of a lot less of a problem if that program is over. Right. So the shutting down of the shuttle program is a significant milestone of sorts if you're looking at the disclosure timeline, right? And I, and I said the same thing about SETI. Uh, uh, you know, regardless of the fact that Jody Foster has dropped some money on them, they need a lot more than that. And so unless some other people jump in there and give them a bunch of money, eventually they'll shut down again. Uh, SETI was set up with government help from the beginning as a, as a propaganda operation. Right. Now, what I mean by that is that in 1958, SETI was set up... Very, not that long after NASA was formed. And so NASA is being formed because we have to have a public space program. Now, by 1958, there had been a huge amount of publicity about UFOs, right? I mean, it was a big deal. Tons of articles. This was the crazy wild days. And uh, NICAP had been formed. It had thousands of members. Donald Keogh was going on television and so they're forming a space program, and they sort of know, you know, guess what? If we form a space program, we're going to have everybody on our case. 
What have you seen? What are you going to do? Are you going to go look for ETs? It's just going to go on and on and on. How, how, how can we deal with that? Well, they were very smart. They created right? search for extraterrestrial intelligence, gave it funding, and said, go look for ET signals. So essentially now, anybody comes to NASA and says, well, what are you doing to find, you know, determine whether these UFOs are real? They can't say, look, UFOs are not our issue. However, we're looking, we're funding the effort to, to, to find extraterrestrial life. We're looking for signals from space. And so it's okay. And most people said, okay, fine. And so essentially it was a pressure valve. It allowed them to operate and do and, and operate within the truth embargo with less pressure coming from the public. Well, don't you care about the possibility of extraterrestrials? And so SETI then becomes a propaganda science operation. Now, it was a joke from the beginning. Well, it wasn't a joke initially. I mean, the idea of getting signals was not out of the question. Well, the idea was solid. It just... It, yeah, but as the years went anywhere. Right? And the reportings and the sightings reports just grew and grew and grew, and the evidence massed and massed and massed. That, no, don't worry about the signals in space. You need to be dealing with the ones that are taking your brother-in-law out of his bedroom every couple of weeks, you know? <laughs> right. One way or another, the government just yanked the funding. Okay, so the government says enough of this. Well, not surprisingly, private money immediately turned up, and SETI continues continued as a, quote, private operation, though, frankly, in the public's mind, they, everybody thought, pretty much everybody thought it was still government-funded. Eventually, NASA started putting money back into it. So, SETI is not, you know, one of the great moments in the history of science. No. It was a program designed to help prevent the truth from coming out, right? Mm -hmm. And so, billions are being put into looking for signals in space when the ETs are right here, engaging the planet. And so as a scientific organization, it will be an historical embarrassment of mega proportions. Uh, I would not want to be anybody associated with SETI, except maybe the guys in the earliest days. Certainly nobody associated with it now. It is a massive embarrassment to the history of science. Now, again, if you have helped create and maintain a scientific propaganda front in order to divert attention from the government's lack of interest in resolving the UFO ET issue. And disclosure happens on Monday. You'd rather that SETI wasn't still around because you're going to get asked about that on Tuesday, aren't you? Oh, definitely. And so when I saw SETI possibly shutting down, I said, mm, that's another disclosure marker. Uh, so to recap... If I'm the government, and I know the disclosure is about to happen, either because I'm going to do it or France is going to do it, I don't want a shuttle program operation operational, and I do not want SETI operational. So that's my thoughts on that. Yeah, that makes sense, definitely. I wasn't sure. So this actually isn't a new space program. It's just shooting up rockets again. You know... Uh, there is a very complex dynamic going on here. I mean, you got Richard Branson, who I, I think is a pretty great guy. He's one of the greatest entrepreneurs of the 20th century, one of the most innovative entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, right along there with Steve Jobs. And he's got the space pro, you know, he's got his private space plane. Uh, it's hooked up with the spaceport that's being created in, uh, in, in about to open in uh, New Mexico that was heavily backed by Bill Richardson. Uh, who is the governor and, of course, is, wrote the foreword to the book Roswell Dig Diaries, where he flat out said, 
he didn't think the Air Force explanation for Roswell added up. Right? You're starting to connect the dots here. And so Branson is going to be taking people into space for three, four hundred thousand dollars a pop. There's two things that trouble me here. And he's not the only one. There's a couple others going to do this. I think some people are going to die. Yeah. Some people are going to pay $300,000 and they're going to go up and they're not going to come back. And more importantly, there's aggravating. The, there's just too much evidence that we have created aggravating craft. And so you've got civilians being taken up in these, quote, private space planes. And we've got anti-gravitic craft. And so once that is revealed, all these private programs are not worth a nickel. They'll all die in a heartbeat. But it gets, it gets worse because, you know, the propulsion system is not the only thing about this, these ET craft that are, are important. It's their energy system. It's extremely important. Uh, and you know you can do hours on that, and there are there are notable experts on this, including Tom Valone for starters. Uh, but those craft they're not operating on kerosene, coal, natural <laughs> gas, uh, and probably not even nuclear. They're operating with an energy system that is is new and profound. And it's true that in our own physics. If you look at the cutting edges of our own physics, we're already nibbling around the edges of that kind of breakthrough energy. And, of course, there's a host of small inventors out there that have come up with devices they believe is tapping into it, tapping into the energy source. Oh, don't we already have something like I believe it was Paul Hillier that was telling me that we already possess stuff like that. Well, you know, he may be referring to the government possessing it within the black. Well, yeah, not us, but I mean, the, 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 the citizens. Well, there are there are pri private or you know citizen inventors that now they may not understand exactly how it's tapping into it, but they think it does. There's there's a lot of that out there. There are people trying to get behind it, put money behind it, and bring it forward, partially because if it could be demonstrated that there is another energy source of of extraordinary. Uh, power and efficiency that that helps to support the UFO ET hypothesis because obviously that that counts for the saucers it helps explain the saucers right fine I think but we have enough evidence for the ET presence we don't really need that but here's the here's the problem you know all the money that's being put into these devices these limited devices uh, the what the government has is light years ahead of that. And if, if you have disclosure on Monday, one, two, three weeks down the line, whenever, because, because the press is going to be relentless, trust me, the press is going to be on our side post-disclosure. There's not, the, not going to be any more pussyfooting. That's going to be time for tire and feathers. <laughs> and at some point, the government may re relent on the energy issue. Uh, not that having some knowledge about Alternative energy is not important. Not that there may be some citizen opportunities here, but the the great problems we have secret complexes. You know, we constantly hear the government bragging about, oh, look, whatever you see out there now, we're already 50 years ahead of that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, airplanes, spaceships. You know, if you, well, you know, and that's true of a lot of things. Well, you know, let's turn that around. 
we're facing global environmental collapses. We're facing massive population problems. We're facing huge social uh, up upheaval, economic collapse. And the government's saying, oh, yeah, we've got technology 50 years ahead. But, of course, you can't have it. Yeah. You, know, you, got, you know, you guys can't use it, right? Because yeah, we need it for, you know, weapons and, you know, secret stuff. But you can't have it. Meanwhile, we're out here. We're sinking. And I'm like, wait, if you've got stuff 50 years ahead, then we need it. We want it. We have to have it. And so this whole secret, you know, bif this bifurcation between the, 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 the white world and the black world is, is no longer so amusing. Now, maybe during the Cold War, when we were all thinking we were all going to be, you know, irradi uh, you know blown, to up, blown up by nuclear weapons, that we had to go along with that. But we're not in that world anymore. And so this idea that government can be decades and decades ahead in bioscience and, and, and rocket science and, and energy science, but we can't have it. That's ridiculous. Is, is, that ain't fine with me anymore. And the American public doesn't quite get that. And if they really got it, man, they'd be out in the streets tomorrow. So nothing is more important under that, how would you say, concept. The issue of energy. Let me tell you, the cost of energy is the single most common and important component to every social, uh, environmental issue in the world today. Whether it's water, food, transportation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, waste disposal, ozone, ozone issue. Uh, and global warming and the cost of energy, right, is the single most common and important component. And so if an energy technology existed that could drop the price of energy even, say, 90 percent, in other words, we could create electrons for, you know, uh, 10 cents on the dollar. And, and we could create those electrons without creating carbon-based pollution. The impact on the world would be profound. And we could start getting our, our act together very quickly. And within 10 years, at least, you know, possibly as soon as 10 years, certainly 15 years, this could be an entirely different planet. And I contend that the evidence increasingly points to the fact that that kind of energy is available. And the only reason that we are not putting it into play right now is that the truth embargo would be ended if that tech was made available and they're not ready to end the truth embargo. And so every negative thing that happens, every person that dies because there's not enough water, not enough food, Damage to the ozone, damage to the oceans, pollution, death by pollutions, which is in the millions every year. Every single one of those since, I'm going to go back to the end of the Cold War. Let's just go back to 1992, all right? Right. Has been greater because the truth embargo was maintained longer. And so the people behind the truth embargo, regardless of their national security rationales, We'll ultimately be asked about this. They're going to say, do you really think that the cost to the public, you know, the, you know, the $400, $500, $600 utility bills, the inability to get enough food and water into the third world, 
the damage to the oceans, the damage to the rivers. Do you really think that was worth maintaining the truth embargo 10, 15, 20 years longer than was necessary? That's the tens true. upon tens of millions of people that might not have died if we'd had cleaner, cheaper energy. This is the real public relations it's problem. part of that, too, that the people that make the energy are the billionaires that control part of the government, too. That they'd be cutting their own throat if they released this because we'd no longer need their fossil fuel. Let's just say that if the historical sorting out of this post-disclosure demonstrates that people making huge sums of money from highly polluting and highly costly energy sources somehow were able to prevent the truth embargo from en en ending by interfering with our political processes, which if you look at the current events of the last 15 years, certainly is not going to surprise anybody if that no, happens. not at all. <laughs> that, 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 that the history will be harsh on them. Mm -hmm. uh, they will be held up as some of the worst pariahs ever, and they will be disgraced. Uh, but they have, these people are very powerful and very wealthy, and they have very substantial resources to create false histories and rationales and explain away or dodge culpabilities here. Now, I'm not saying that's the case. I don't know. Right. But uh, it's possible. And so, again, you know, we have a choice to make. Are we going, is the 20th century, 21st century going to be a century where ever-increasing amounts of governance, policies, and technological development going to be conducted in deeper and deeper and larger secret empires? Or are we going to reduce those secret empires and start putting all of our resources into the commons? Right? That is one key issue. And the other is, are we going to reform and repair the dysfunctional consequences of 44 years of a $20 trillion Cold War and then another 20 years of post-Cold War bad policies, right, which have not taken us where we need to go, and, and, and substantial structural dysfunctions in government, most governments, certainly the United States, are we going to repair and reform these or are we going to allow them to continue to damage the commons and create havoc? The fallout uh, from all this is just going to be exactly. unbelievable. You don't spend 15, 20 trillion dollars on a cold war, money that could have been spent in, in improving the human condition and, and making a life for people so that they wouldn't resort to violence and terrorism and not pay a consequence. Oh, I agree 100%. And it's like a family, you know? Uh-huh. Father goes out and spends the entire family money uh, on, I don't know, a Maserati that he then drives off a cliff. There will be consequences. The kids won't be able to go to college. There won't be food on the table, right? Yeah, that's true. Consequences to policies. And one of the problems that America has, or at least had, I think it's trying to wake up now, is that we, the American people, sort of operated under the idea that there were no consequences to American policy. Do anything it wanted, but there'd be no, there'd be no blowback, no consequences, because we're we're an exceptional nation, and and we'll it, we have the God on our side, and and we'll always come out fine. Well, that was an illusion. That used to be the American way. That's what everybody thought. It was never true. 
you know, but 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 now we're starting to understand that it is anything but true. It's part of the American dream that was kind of a double-sided thing. <laughs> but it's it's also the case. I mean, UK, the United Kingdom has a similar problem. There are other nations that still have these kind of delusions and plenty of dysfunctional problems out there. So the, these are the two major questions, right? Are, are, are we going to are we going to pare back secrecy and start creating real, open, transparent governments, uh, which is, of course, what Obama claims he wants to do, but it'll take a lot more than him. And are we going to reform the dysfunction that emerged from the, the Cold War and the post-Cold War policies? Uh, these are the two questions that are going to have to be answered by the current generation. Yeah, that's a tall order, but it would be great if they did. But, man, that's, <laughs> that's asking a lot from a government it's that generally tough. doesn't do anything. It's a tough one. If they didn't have the Internet to work with, I would say they didn't have a snowball's chance. Right. Internet is just a, a new global power. Anything can be done if you have Internet. <laughs> Uh, but again, um, the the link to the White House petition is at disclosurepetition.info, though you can easily find this petition if you go to the whitehouse.gov website and just go to the We the People section. Uh, the World Disclosure Day endorsements are all being gathered at worlddisclosureday.org, and I look forward to some people maybe coming to my workshop on Sunday, uh, October 2nd at the Conscious Life Expo. Check out Awake and Aware down in Irvine this weekend. And then there's a big film festival in Hollywood and a disclosure concert on Sunday, the 25th, in Hollywood and Vine. So, All right, everybody, that was Stephen Bassett. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. So what's with your grind? TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Okay, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show tonight. We'll be back next week with a brand new show. You can check out theedgeonair.com, ufo-info.com throughout the week uh, to listen to archive shows. Brand new shows on theedgeonair.com, Friday night from 10 to 11. Also Sunday night, 7.30 on ufo-info.com at 7.30 p.m. We hope you enjoyed the live ghost conference. We'll see you next week. Oh, oh, oh.